Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. This is going to be a fun one, folks. Want to let you know if it's your first time here to Modern Day Debate. We are a channel that strives to host debates on science, politics, and religion in the most neutral way possible so everybody can have their chance to make their case on an equal playing field. And we do want to let you know, no matter what walk of life you are from, Christian, atheist, you name it, folks, we really do hope you feel welcome and we are excited for today's debate. Want to let you know a couple of housekeeping things for the channel before we get rolling. One is that if you haven't heard, Modern Day Debate has invaded the podcast world. This is an addition to our YouTube channel. We're really excited about this. Let us know if you can't find us on your favorite podcast app and we'll work to get on there. Also excited for future debates. Next week, David Smalley and Randall Rouser will be facing off on whether or not it's rational to believe in Christianity. So that should be a really fun one. And if you want reminders, consider hitting that subscribe button as we have many other debates coming up as well. Want to let you know, for today's debate, it's going to be kind of a in the middle of the road type of debate in terms of format. It's going to be 15 minute opening statements followed by 10 minute rebuttals and then 50 to 60 minutes or so of open conversation and 30 minutes, oh that's right, five minute closings followed by 30 minutes of Q&A. So if you have a question, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. And if you tag me with at Modern Day Debate, it makes it easier for me to get every question in that Q&A list. Super Chat is also an option, in which case you can also make a comment toward one of the speakers that they, of course, would get a chance to respond to, and it'll push your question or comment to the top of the list for the Q&A. Want to let you know, though, of course, we really do appreciate our guests being here. So with your Super Chats or questions, whatever it is, we ask that you be as respectful of your regular friendly selves that does go a long way and with that want to say thanks to our guests though it's a true pleasure to have both matt dillahunty and dr jonathan mcclatchy on so we'll start just with matt dillahunty if you have somehow not heard of him if you have interest in these debate folks i want to let you know Basically, you could say, would it be fair to say the founder and current leader of the atheist experience a a monstrous no. huh no, actually. What would be the, the formal so, titles? The show's been on for 23 years. I've been hosting it for about 15 or so. Um, I've just been doing it since we decided to broadcast it live on the internet as well. Before that, there was some recorded stuff. There was It was local public access um, and some great people involved, but I didn't create it. So in much the same way that I was never actually a preacher, I was studying to be a preacher. Uh, I am not the creator of the atheist experience. I'm just the guy that's been hosting it uh, more than anybody and for longer, but... It's, it's all good. Absolutely. And he is linked below. So if you want to hear more from Matt, you certainly can at that link. And very excited to let you know as well, Dr. Jonathan McClatchy joining us again. Glad to have you, Jonathan. If you could share just what you've been up to as well in terms of what people can find at your link. Thanks for being here, Jonathan. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to be here. So uh, you can find me at jonathanmcclatchy.com. That's my personal website where I... Uh, have many of my articles um, and you can also find links to my YouTube channel and book me to speak and that sort of fun stuff there as well. 
I, I like to counsel Christians to wrestle with intellectual doubts. There's a form on my website that Christians can fill out and tell me about their intellectual doubts. And I set up uh, live Zoom meetings to discuss their, their doubts with them in confidence. Uh, I am an assistant professor of biology uh, at a Christian college in Boston, Massachusetts called Sattler College. Uh, my PhD is in, in the field of evolutionary biology and I'm uh, very interested in uh, Christian apologetics and defending the, the veracity of the Christian faith, looking at the scientific um, aspect as well, since that's my field of primary expertise. And I'm also interested in uh, biblical apologetics and, and uh, biblical historiography, in particular on the resurrection of Jesus, which is the topic of our conversation today. Absolutely. And so with that, folks, really excited to jump into it. We will hand it over to Dr. Jonathan McClatchy for his 15-minute opening statement. I have got the timer set, and we'll start it on your first word, Jonathan. Thanks so much. We, we can't hear Oops, you. I'm sorry. Oh, there we go. I'm sorry. I was on mute. Sorry, I'll start again. No problem. Okay. So first of all, let me thank Matt Dillahunty for agreeing to participate in today's debate and James Kunz, of course, for organizing what I hope will be an engaging and spirited discussion. Uh, since my time for my, um, and Matt, by the way, and I are um, closer than you might think in terms of our uh, epistemology. I'm a very staunch uh, evidentialist, so I would argue that I believe in the truth of Christianity because and only because uh, I am persuaded by the public evidence that Christianity is objectively true. So um, I'm looking forward to where our conversation goes uh, this afternoon. So since my time for my opening statement is very limited, I'm, going, I'm only uh, going to be able to present the bare bones case for the resurrection, but I'm of course able to flesh out these arguments and fill in any missing pieces as our discussion progresses. So here are these um, four hypotheses that you see on the screen, I would argue, um, are mutually exhaustive categories of explanation, which purport to explain and account for the evidence that, that is before us. The first of those is that Jesus' immediate followers following his death did not claim that Jesus rose again. They would have been a surprise to anyone else to hear that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and the Gospels are later myths. We can call that the myth hypothesis. Or secondly, is the followers were deceived into thinking that he rose again. Uh, we can call that the hallucination hypothesis. Um, or thirdly, his followers deceived others into thinking that he rose again. We might call that the conspiracy hypothesis. Um, or finally, he actually did rise again, this, the hypothesis to which I myself subscribe. And we can call that, of course, the resurrection hypothesis. Now, let's have a look at some of the evidences that needs to be explained, and then we'll look at some of the and what, what might best explain those facts. Now, I'm sure Matt is very aware, uh, very familiar with and acquainted with the oral creedal tradition that Paul passes on in 1 Corinthians 15, three through eight. Uh, this is um, Paul's first epistle to the Corinthian church writing in the uh, mid fifties AD. He says, for I deliver to you as a first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and the Hebrew to Kephas, then to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are so alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, he, as to one entirely born, he appeared also to me. Now, I want to focus on what Paul goes on to say next in verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of the apostles. I'm worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 
And so Paul here seems to be uh, indicating um, or assuming uh, that the Corinthian Christians understand his proclamation of the core propositions of the gospel, the death of Christ, the burial, the resurrection, to be consistent with what's already been preached to them, proclaimed to them, by the other uh, apostles, in particular Peter, James, and the Twelve. We have independent confirmation, of course, in 1 Corinthians 1, that the Corinthians were acquainted with the preaching of Peter, or Kephas, um, because Paul chides them for having divisions and factions in their midst. Some say, I follow Kephas, others Apollos, others I follow Paul, others I follow Christ, and so forth. And so Paul seems to be indicating here that the Corinthians understand what he's now presenting to them concerning the gospel is consistent with what's already been proclaimed by the other apostles. And so that suggests then that the resurrection belief goes right back to the original apostolic eyewitnesses. Another evidence that also bears on this is the book of Acts. Now, the, the author of Acts, his name was Luke, uh, was a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. There's overwhelming evidence for that. Happy to discuss that in detail if we need to. In Acts chapter 2, he mentions Peter's speech at Pentecost. He says, that, and this is some 50 days after the resurrection, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. And so Luke seems to be also re reporting that the immediate proclamation by the apostolic eyewitnesses was that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the apostles. Now you might ask at this point, well, can we trust Luke Acts to be giving us a reliable report of what the original apostles believed? Well, I would argue that there's, there's um, good evidence for, for taking Luke at his word on this. Um, one is that Luke Acts, um, so Luke and Acts are companion volumes authored by the same author, says it's grounded in eyewitness testimony and um, with a Jerusalem witness. I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. And secondly, the author um, worked with the Apostle Paul, and so he was present with Paul at the Jerusalem church in Acts 21. So in uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, in the prologue, he mentions, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. In uh, Acts 21, he also indicates that he was present with Paul in Jerusalem, where he met with the Jerusalem elders. James, in particular, he singles out. He says, when we, notice the inclusive pronoun, had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So um, Luke was, um, was in a position of contact with the, other, uh, with the Jerusalem elders, in particular James uh, and the, the other um, elders of Jerusalem. Now, um, was, was, is Luke, was Luke really present with Paul as he claims to be at, um, at this visit to Jerusalem? Well, there's a number of evidences for this. I could literally speak for hours on the evidences for Luke being a traveling companion of Paul and indeed the reliability of the Book of Acts. Um, let me just give you one piece of evidence that is taken um, by scholars to indicate that the weep passages indeed indicate that the author is a traveling companion of Paul. This one is provided by Craig Keener in his uh, four-volume commentary set on the Book of Acts. Um, so the we passages, and these are introduced in chapter 16 and following, um, trail off in Acts when Paul is in Philippi. And then the we passages pick up again in Acts 20, verse 5 and following, when Paul goes back through Philippi. And that seems to, to indicate that, or, be, or suggest that the author of Acts uh, remained in Philippi and reaccompanied Paul upon Paul's uh, um, travels once again through, through Philippi. And so that is consistent with 
the author being a traveling companion of Paul. And there's various uh, historiographical points of confirmation in the Book of Acts and Undesigned Coincidences with the Epistles of Paul, which also bolster this conclusion much further. We can discuss that if, if uh, we want to at uh, later point. Another, so, so if, if, if then Luke really was with Paul in Acts 21, and of course Luke was in prison with Paul in Caesarea Philippi, then he was in a position to know, and he was in prison with Paul in Caesarea Philippi for about two years, then he was in a position to know what was being proclaimed by the um, Jerusalem apostles. And so when he says in Acts chapter two that this was what was preached by Peter, then we can we have reason for confidence, especially in view of Luke's accuracy as an historian and his, his, um, uh, his um, shown uh, habitual truthfulness. Another evidence that the claim goes right back to the apostles is the gospel according to John, the fourth of our gospels in our canon. In John 20, he describes... Uh, one of the resurrection appearances. John 20, verse 19 and 20 says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sight. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now you might ask at this point, well, was John an eyewitness? And I think there's good reason to think that John was indeed an eyewitness. And I could again talk about this for hours, but I'm just gonna give one line of evidence for now. In John 18, verse 10, it says, and Simon Peter, this is when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, when Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's um, servant, he cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, John is the only gospel author to mention the name of the high priest's servant. But how does John know the servant's name, right? It's the only gospel to give us that detail. Well, if we, if we continue reading in verse 8, 26 and 27, it says, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once the rooster crowed. How does the author know that the individual who approached Peter was one of the high priest's servants? Knowledge that's specific to John, again, in, in verse um, 15 and 16, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside of the door. And so there's this other disciple that's following along with Peter that's known to the high priest. Now, who is this other disciple that's known to the high priest? Well, if we read John chapter 20, it says, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. So the, disciple, the other disciple turns out to be this disciple whom Jesus loved. This also is indicated in John 19, 26. The disciple who's with um, Jesus' mother at the cross is the beloved disciple. In John 21, 24, John claims that this beloved disciple is indeed the, the author of this fourth gospel, the one who provides this information. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. This explains then how the author came to know the name of the high priest servant and thus it, it provides support for the Jahanian authorship of the Gospel of John and adds to this cumulative evidence which we could discuss later that further bolsters that conclusion as well. So I think, I, and I've shown multiple lines of evidence and there's, there's more that, that um, rule out or, or argue against this first contending hypothesis that his immediate followers did not claim he rose again. The Gospels are later myths. Then we have to explain, okay, so if they claim that Jesus rose from the dead, if it goes right back to the original apostolic eyewitnesses, then what brings them to that belief? Um, or what, what, what brings them to that statement? Were they deliberately lying about it? Or were they honestly mistaken? Or did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, you might point out at this point, and Matt has said this in some of his previous debates, that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. Um, and this is true under certain circumstances. So studies have shown, and I, I can cite those studies if, if required, 
the eyewitness testimony is typically unreliable, particularly on details, namely that the events happen quickly over a period of seconds or minutes, that participants are strangers to one another, or there's a weapon present such as a knife or a gun. But contrast that with the nature of the claimed appearances in the gospel accounts. They are public. Uh, they, are, um, they involve, uh, Jesus appears to multiple people at once. They're multi-sensory, polymodal. They involve not just sight, but hearing and conversation, even group conversation, physical contact, etc. And they were extended across time. So it wasn't just one brief and confusing episode. According to Acts 1, uh, it was extended across the 40-day time period. Uh, so it wasn't just one brief and confusing episode. So I think the, the nature of the claimed experiences of the risen Christ is something that's very difficult to be honestly wrong about. And so that, I think, provides evidence against the second of those contending categories of explanation, namely that his followers were deceived into thinking he was again, they were honestly, sincerely mistaken, or the hallucination hypothesis. I think this evidence points strongly against that. What about the... Uh, um, what about the third of those hypotheses that, that his followers were deceiving others deliberately into believing he rose again? Well, I think one good line of evidence against this is the fact that the apostles were willing to suffer and, and die for their conviction that that's what they saw, the raised Christ. Why did the New, new Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion, right? Why would they die for a known lie? Many people die for something they believe to be true, but no one or very few people die for something that they know to be false. And these apostles were in a position to know whether what they were claiming was true or not. In fact, the martyrdoms of Peter and James, the Lord's brother, are especially well attested. In fact, um, the martyrdom of Peter is reported in, in two first century sources, namely uh, John 21, where at the end of uh, John's gospel, Jesus anticipates the death, the martyrdom of Peter by crucifixion. And it in fact says that Jesus said these to indicate the manner of death that Peter was to die. And if John was writing, as he probably was, after Peter's martyrdom, then it seems very unlikely that John would have attributed that prophecy to Jesus had it not happened in the way he describes. And also uh, First Clement, uh, Clement's epistle to the church in Corinth around AD 96, uh, he also mentions the martyrdom of Peter in section 5. James, the Lord's brother, also, um, we have testimony from Flavius Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews, volume 20, that he dies, he's thrown from the temple mount, and he's bludgeoned to death. And, uh, and James, of course, was a skeptic during Jesus' lifetime. I think we've got good support from that, for that from the Gospels. And yet, shortly after the resurrection, G James uh, becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. In fact, um, I, I like to ask the skeptics, how much, how much would it take to convince you that your elder brother was the Yahweh of the Old Testament to the point of martyrdom, right? Something pretty radical, it seems to me. And of course, Peter um, denies the Lord three times to save his own skin. So terrified was he of crucifixion, yet something changed that man. I think the best explanation for that, again, is the resurrection uh, of Jesus. So then I think we've um, argued uh, convincingly against the first of those hypotheses that, uh, that we've got um, what we have in the gospel reportage of the resurrection is a later developing myth. I think we've shown that the resurrection claim goes back to the original apostles. And I think that we can actually ground the gospels and acts in uh, substantially reliable and credible eyewitness testimony. I haven't really gotten into the arguments for that, but I think we can establish that. That being the case, then we have to take seriously what they say concerning the nature and variety of the resurrection encounters with the risen Jesus. So it's coming from the earliest apostolic eyewitnesses involving its multi-sensory character, as I described, and its extension across a 40-day time period. Uh, that then um, argues, I think, significantly against the, the hallucination hypothesis or the honestly mistaken hypothesis. And the conspiracy hypothesis, I think, is argued against, as I showed, by the fact that they were willing to suffer and die for their beliefs uh, in the resurrection and liars make poor martyrs. And we could get into other arguments which substantiate those, um, 
conclusions as well um, as, as time progresses. But I think then we've provided enough evidence to point uh, in the direction of the resurrection claim, uh, which is the one I myself subscribe to, uh, that Jesus in fact did uh, rise from the dead. And so I'll finish then by quoting the conclusion that the angels themselves gave to the women in Mark chapter 16, verse 6. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Jonathan. We'll kick it over then for an opening statement from Matt as well. Thanks, Matt. The floor is all yours. I'm assuming you can hear me. I'll start my stopwatch. How are we doing? <clears throat> so uh, is anything... And, and this isn't the rebuttal. I, I wrote this. This is just my opening statement. Is there anything that we're going to consider today that couldn't be counted as hearsay? And I would argue that hearsay is not particularly strong evidence. Hearsay often isn't even admissible in a court of law. So in deciding whether or not to bring a case, a district attorney evaluates the evidence and should make a decision based on what they think they can prove, what a judge, the determiner of the facts in the case, is going to actually uh, allow and what they may or may not find convincing or what other people, a jury, may find convincing. So in order to do that, they want the strongest evidence possible. And that's why I was happy when I saw that we were going to do a debate on the strong evidence for the resurrection. And my first question, of course, is well, what counts as strong evidence? Well, normally we would want physical evidence that's consistent with the events and points to a, the conclusion that we're trying to advocate for. We would actually like witness testimonies, provided that those witnesses can be presented, evaluated, questioned, examined, and we can determine uh, how much their statements align. Um, if you recorded a deposition of someone giving their testimony to something, um, would it be allowed in court if that person died? Yeah, it turns out that in many cases, even someone who has died, their deposition would be allowed in, in court. And part of that reason for that is that when giving a deposition, cross-examination is part of it. The process by which we go about getting a deposition would allow even someone who was dead to have their deposition considered in a court. Would that also be true if the deposition was anonymous? Probably not. There may be some extenuating circumstances where someone uh, whose anonymity is, is valued in the, in the greater scheme of things, but they wouldn't be anonymous to the court. Now, why am I, oh my gosh, why is he talking about a courtroom? Are we trying to take God to court? Well, yeah, actually. Uh, because if your view is that there's strong evidence for this, then it should withstand any, anything that we would hold in a courtroom of presenting good evidence and determining whether or not there's reasonable grounds to make a conclusion about what the actual case is. And so what if you couldn't demonstrate, though, that the recording that you had of this deposition had not been altered, like there was no good chain of custody of evidence, uh, or if there were actual evidence that the deposition that was given had been altered, that it didn't line up with stuff, or that we'd lost the original and we just had a copy. There are reasons that hearsay is not considered strong evidence. In the case of the Bible, we don't have testimonials or depositions. No one is under oath. No one is being questioned. What we have is propaganda from anonymous, altered, ancient accounts. That's it. Eyewitness testimony is unreliable. I'm not saying that that means that somebody's a liar. That would be a fallacy to, to conclude that. The point is that we know that our eyewitness testimony is unreliable under the best circumstances. I have 
like friends where we'll get together and reminisce about things we did 15, 20 years ago. And everybody has a different recollection of it, including who was right and who was wrong. Um, granted, that's not as big a deal as to whether or not you watched somebody rise from the dead. I, I will grant you that. But in this case, we don't know whose testimony we're, we're, we're looking at. Is this an actual eyewitness? Is it secondhand? Is it thirdhand? We have no way to investigate it. The things that they are claiming don't have physical evidence to corroborate them. They don't have any supporting physical evidence. It's not like we can provide a body or compare DNA or look at a tomb or anything. Um, so what sort of evidence would we expect? If we were to be the biggest charitable listener and we lived in a world where we were convinced that there was in fact a God and that Jesus existed, I think we lost your audio, Matt. Uh, I'm not sure if you can hear me. Uh, did you, uh, Jonathan, um, can you neither of you hear me? Oh, uh, Matt, I think we, Matt, can you hear me? Just one second. Folks, Matt said that sometimes this happens and it's very temporary, so we'll be back and running in just a moment. I'll stop the clock. Yep, I'm back. You betcha. I'm back? You got me? Yes. Sweet. Apologize. I don't know what the last thing you heard was, but I was talking about what sort of evidence we might expect if, in fact, there were actually a God behind this. And I would argue that we'd probably expect the best evidence possible, because if you were God and you had gone to this extraordinary uh, length to, to do whatever it is that needed to be done in this resurrection, and it was important for people to actually have a sound evidence-based belief of this, that you would do your best to make sure that the best evidence were available. And clearly, God should have access to the best evidence and should be able to present it. And yet, that's not what happened. We don't have that. We don't even have close to that. God, if it exists, has done nothing to preserve the chain of evidence, nothing to vouch for its reliability, hasn't even presented the idea of, uh, preserve the identity of the individuals performing, uh, putting forward these claims. God should be able to understand the issues surrounding sufficient acceptable evidence and should be able to easily overcome it. And that hasn't happened. The, the, the evidence that Jonathan and I are here engaged in debate about whether or not it's reasonable to accept or whether or not there's sufficient strong evidence for the resurrection uh, is, is evidence that this has not happened o or that I'm crazy. I, I will have to, you know, that I'm, I'm a wholly irrational, unreasonable person. But a God should understand that these issues uh, surrounding what qualifies as sufficient acceptable evidence and what strong evidence and should be able to overcome it. Well, if we assume that there is a God, what reasons might God have for not providing confirmation of strong evidence? Perhaps it's because the actual God isn't the God that Jonathan's advocating for, that either the resurrection didn't happen or that it's a god for some other religion or that people have it so wrong or god has his reasons or god works in mysterious ways all of these could provide an excuse for why we don't particularly have strong evidence but not necessarily an explanation because it, it, if you simultaneously think that god wants you to understand him and know that he existed and know that he came down and took human form and sacrificed himself to himself in some sort of blood magic loophole for rules that he's in charge of um that would be important to actually present. Or perhaps there isn't actually a God at all, 
or not a God that cares or wants to interact or wants to provide evidence. Um, maybe he's hiding, maybe he just doesn't exist. And this is why we have copies of copies of translations of hearsay accounts for which we can't even identify an author or conduct any realistic investigation. Now, I took notes and I'll, I'll be providing proper rebuttals to a good chunk of what Jonathan said, but I am here primarily to talk about what should count as strong evidence and why when it comes to something like the resurrection which may if it's true it's the single most important thing anybody could know that i, I don't see how anybody could even argue otherwise if in fact the resurrection is true there, there could be nothing more important i guess i mean it's all it, it fundamentally ties to how, where you're going to spend eternity which is the big selling point of apologists all if you were to get hit by a bus and die tonight do you know where you would spend eternity which I, I think is a flawed presumption that I'm going to be spending eternity anywhere. Because as far as I can tell, I just cease to exist. But there's, no, there's nothing here in this resurrection account that would rise to the level of even filing a case, a district attorney filing a case, let alone one that a judge would accept or a jury could, could be become convinced of. Um, because the evidence isn't strong. There's no body, there's no tomb, there's no blood, there's no sword, there's no spear, there's no cross, there's no DNA, there's no burial rags, despite the fake Shroud of Turin, which I would hope that, I, I, I actually don't know, because I sat on a plane with somebody who legitimately thought that Shroud of Turin was a thing, it's a fake, but uh, there's no witnesses, no crime scene investigators, no finding of facts at all. In fact, while I'm not a mythicist, and I'm fine with the notion that Jesus probably existed in some form, um, the advocates of this tale can't even reasonably confirm the existence of the person they claim died and was resurrected because it all ties back to here's a collection of writings that we have that we can't source. Um, they're just tradition. They're just the hearsay of the collection of people who agreed with and accepted these claims in the story. I'm not saying those people are wrong. I don't know how you could prove they're wrong, but they haven't presented strong evidence to show they're right. So what would happen if I claimed to raise someone from the dead um, and you came and said, hey, we want to see this guy that you raised from the dead. Now, if I printed, presented somebody that was living and I had no case to show where they'd actually died, okay, I, nobody's going to believe me. Nobody should believe me. But if I said, hey, that person that I raised from the dead, they're not here anymore. They've ascended to another plane and now you can't investigate this at all. Um, would we have good reason to believe it? What if there were people who said they saw me do this? Um, what if I kept telling people that this person who I raised from the dead is going to come back eventually, and yet they apparently, repeatedly, failed to do so? They didn't show up to say, yep, Matt's right, he raised me from the dead, or, uh, hey, Matt's right, I was raised from the dead, I did through this power or however else. There, there's nothing along there. The truth here is that the best evidence for the resurrection of Jesus isn't remotely something that I could consider strong. Is, is there evidence? Yes, in the sense that there's anecdotal, testimonial evidence, but that shouldn't be enough to conclude that somebody raised from the dead. Um, it, I, I'm not quite sure what sort of evidence we could present, but if everything we presented is nothing that would be admit, admissible in a court of law or sufficient to lead someone to the conclusion that, yeah, we've almost certainly sorted this out and Jesus rose from the dead, if we were starting to consider evidence weak evidence as as if it were strong we'd be flooding uh, evidence that were that was this week of here's an old book by somebody we don't know and i'm convinced that it was written by this person who's an eyewitness and we're just going to take their word as an eyewitness that they and some other people are witnesses to the resurrection of the incarnation of god 
if we accepted that as strong evidence, then our courtrooms would be once again flooded with spectral evidence and uh, witch trials and other things, because the, the evidence for this resurrection claim is not in any way stronger than the evidence for alien abductions or somebody's claims about what a witch did in, in the woods late at night. How much more do we have to learn about good standards of evidence before the folks advocating for this resurrection account finally begin to realize um, that what they're pointing to doesn't and shouldn't and won't ever count as strong evidence. Strong evidence is physical evidence. It is well-documented. It would be the eyewitness testimony of a handful of people who were, in, who were uh, questioned, cross-examined, uh, who were recorded, who demonstrated that they didn't have a particular bias in a, in a particular direction, that they were actually presenting what they saw honestly. We have no ability to investigate any of that. It's on par or worse than the evidence offered by someone trying to sell me a bridge, someone trying to get me started in their, uh, as an underling in their multi-level marketing scam, or the money that my Nigerian prince has set aside for me. If that's the case, then I don't know how we can consider the evidence strong and no amount of pretending will actually change that. When we're talking about a resurrection, Jonathan begins by assuming that there is a person, a death, and an account of a resurrection that m we need to make some sort of explanation for. Now, obviously, during the rebuttal, we'll get into this a little bit better. But I think he's already starting a little bit too far down the track because certainly we have a story that accounts for a death and a resurrection. But how do we, if you're going to list the ways in which we can account for a story, I think he overlooked at least one, if not several options. Because what he presented was essentially a version of the liar, lunatic, or lord, and he left out the legend option, which is where I'll stand. Thanks. You bet. Thank you very much, Matt. We will go into the rebuttals now. There's only one rebuttal, and then we'll go into open conversation. And what I mean by that is one rebuttal from each side. So we'll start with Jonathan, and I have the clock set for you, Jonathan, at 10 minutes. I'll start it on your first word. Excellent. Well, thank you, uh, Matt, uh, for your opening statement. Uh, just uh, you might recall my opening statement, I, I presented four uh, categories of explanation, which I which I um, argued were mutually exhaustive in terms of their um, attempt to account for the relevant evidence. Those were uh, number one that uh, that Jesus in fact didn't rise from the dead, and that the disciples didn't claim he rose from the dead, but it's a later developing le legend or myth. Uh, second, that uh, that the disciples did claim he rose from the dead, but they lied about it. Sa thirdly, that uh, he the um, the disciples claimed he rose from the dead, but they were honestly mistaken about it. And finally, the, the, the hypothesis to which I myself subscribe, namely that Jesus really, in fact, did rise from the dead. Uh, Matt alleged at the end of his opening statement, uh, falsely, although he, he probably just forgot, that I omitted the, the legend hypothesis. No, that was one of my four that I offered. Uh, I offered uh, the, the myth hypothesis or the legend hypothesis. And then I showed, and I, I, I could talk about it for some time, that the resurrection claim goes back to the original um, apostles. You can demonstrate that using Paul, as I did, First Corinthians 15, uh, 3 through 11, uh, 3 through 8 is the, the what's often thought to be a creedal tradition that Paul is passing on to the Corinthian Christians. Uh, and verse 11, he says, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so he believes. Even if you uh, even if you reject exactly the argument from the creedal tradition, uh, the argument in verse 11, I think, is, is quite strong that uh, he's passing on to the Corinthians what had already been preached to them by Peter and the, the apostles. And uh, we know that 
Corinthians had were, were acquainted with the preaching of Peter in First Corinthians one, and then I showed Luke as well. Luke uh, was a traveling companion of Paul. He had ample access to the treasure trove of living witnesses to the bodily resurrection of the Christ, and uh, he was with Paul in Acts twenty one in Jerusalem. And and so we and since Luke is is shown to be a habitually truthful and reliable historian, we can trust him at his word when he says in Acts two. Um, that Peter was preaching the resurrection at Pentecost. We can also uh, trust him in Luke 24 when he tells us about the nature and variety of the resurrection encounters. And indeed in Acts 1 when he tells us that it was extended across a 40-day time period. So it wasn't just a brief confusing episode. Um, he says, I begin with assuming that there was a person and a death, etc. Well, I mean, the evidence for there being an historical Jesus is, is overwhelming. I, I know you're not arguing for mythicism, but uh, I mean, I, I would take for granted that there's a person, uh, Jesus. I mean, the, the evidence for that is, is overwhelming, um, both from Paul and from, from the Gospels and, and Acts and so forth. Um, and uh, and there's overwhelming evidence that he died as well. I mean, I, I hope that Matt's not going to seriously entertain the swim theory. I, I don't think that he will, but um, that has is fraught with with many problems we could, we could discuss. Um, he says he's not sure um, what sort of evidence we could present, uh, and he... He says that there's uh, that the only type of evidence that strong evidence is physical evidence, and the documentary evidence is, is by its nature weak. Uh, I would disagree with that. I think I mean when when you're dealing with forensic statement analysis, for example, in in uh, in cold case homicide de um, detection, uh, then uh, analyzing um, deceased witness witness statements, I think, can serve as, as a form of evidence. And, and the argument that I would pr pr um, propose is a cumulative argument. It's not based on one single document, documentary source, but it's based on a myriad of mutually corroborating and confirming uh, sources, which convergently point in the direction of the resurrection. And we have evidence not only for the veracity of the post-resurrection sightings of Jesus, but we also have evidence for the empty tomb uh, and so forth. And so the resurrection hypothesis not only has the greatest explanatory power to explain each of these singular observations, but also the explanatory scope to explain all the all the, um, all the um, relevant evidence. Uh, he, uh, he says that uh, the gospel accounts are anonymous. Uh, and here we don't actually know exactly whether the gospel accounts were anonymous because we don't have the original autographs, right? So the, 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 the original uh, papyri um, manuscripts uh, may have had the names written on them. We, we just don't know. So we don't know for sure whether the original autographs were anonymous. Um, and I would argue that at least Luke, um, you know, he, Luke was writing to an official by the name of Theophilus. I mean, you'd think that Theophilus didn't know who was addressing him, who was writing to him. So that seems to me to at least suggest that maybe Luke was not anonymous. And we, I think we have good confirmatory evidence that the Luke Acts companion volumes was indeed written by Luke, one of Paul's traveling companions. Uh, John, uh, I, I argued in my opening statement, was um, himself uh, a self-professed eyewitness. And if you think First John was written by the same author as John's Gospel, as I think he was, and as I think it was, and I think there's good evidence for that, in um, the prologue of, of First John, he also um, explicitly identifies himself as, as an eyewitness of, of Jesus. Um, so uh, he... Um, he, and Matt's right to make a distinction between strong evidence versus just mere um, mere evidence, and uh, um, obviously it's it's uh, I think philosophically unnuanced for atheists to say there's no evidence for the existence of God or for the, the resurrection, etc. Because obviously there is some evidence; it's just a matter of whether it's sufficient to overcome the relevant prior probability. And uh, um, so that there is, um, and the way that I would define evidence is as follows: the evidence. E as evidence for your hypothesis H, if and only if the probability of E is greater given H than given non-H. Uh, and I think that the evidence um, 
it, it, I think there's there's strong um, cumulative evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, he's, he mentioned that there were copy that all we have in the Gospels is copies of copies of translations of hearsay accounts. I don't know where he gets that from. We have the original Greek, uh, not the original autographs, but we have original Greek manuscripts uh, which are from you know the second, third, fourth centuries. Uh, so it's not that we have copies of copies of translations of hearsay accounts. It's not that there were we had Greek manuscripts and they were copied into Latin and then um, and then translated into English and that's what we have. No, we have they're trans we have the English Bibles that we New Testaments that we have are translated from from the Greek um, manuscripts. Um, he, uh, Matt's uh, right, I think, to be more skeptical of miraculous events than he would be of mundane events. Um, but the only force that the fact that we are discussing miraculous rather than a mundane event has is it suppresses the prior probability. That is the probability of the event given only the background information. And I'm quite happy to concede that miraculous claims should not be accepted credulously. So even if a person I respect and trust tells me about a miracle he believes he witnessed, I'm going to ask a lot more questions than if he told me about a non-miraculous event precisely because of the extra issues with the prior probability or the probability just given the background information that we know that miracles are not everyday occurrences. And so Matt is completely correct to expect more evidence for an event with a, with a low prior. But low priors, you know, even astronomically small ones, can in principle be overcome given sufficient evidence. That is to say, anything that's not logically impossible, which would have a prior probability of zero, can in principle be demonstrated given adequate evidence. And I would even argue that documentary evidence, if you have enough of it, a sufficient volume of it, can in principle overcome an astronomically small prior. Um, so, for, for example, suppose we want to know the odds that a particular individual won last week's Mega Millions jackpot in the United States. Well, the, pro the prior probability would be set at one in approximately 302 million, since those are the odds that any individual lottery participant chosen at random would win the Mega Millions jackpot. And that's a, that's a very low prior probability, but it can be overcome if the supposed winner were to subsequently quit his job and start routinely investing in private jets, sports cars, expensive vacations, perhaps he could even show us his bank statement or the documentary evidence of his winnings. And these different pieces of evidence taken together would stack up to provide a powerful confirmatory evidence sufficient to overcome a very small prior probability to yield a high posterior probability that the individual did indeed win the Mega Millions jackpot. Um, and even if you have no way of determining a prior probability of an event, um, another viable approach one can take is to back solve for how low of a prior that the, the relevant evidence could overcome. Um, and I, um, I would argue, in fact, that we can, in fact, increase the prior probability of the resurrection. Perhaps we can discuss this in the discussion um, by demonstration of A, the existence of God, for which I think there's overwhelming confirmatory evidence from the natural sciences, and B, establishing the theohistorical context of the resurrection. And we can flesh that out if, if, uh, if need be. Um, uh, Matt, Matt also mentioned that, uh, so, uh, um, so Matt said that he's not sure what sort of evidence we could present. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what kind of evidence would convince Matt that the resurrection actually occurred? What kind of uh, documentary evidence uh, would be sufficient? What, even what kind of physical evidence would be sufficient to convince you? Um, if you can't give an answer to that, then I'm skeptical of whether your view is an evidence-based view. Um, you said what, uh, you, that you would want the best evidence possible, and God would do his best to make sure that, uh, the, that uh, the best evidence is is available. Um, I think that we do have very strong evidence, and I think that the evidence for Christianity is not limited to the resurrection, although we think we have very strong evidence for the resurrection, but you also have arguments from predictive prophecy and, and so forth. And uh, so cumulatively, looking at all the evidences together, I think they stack up to provide a very, very powerful cumulative uh, case for the, the truth of Christianity. Um, so um, 
think I've addressed um, most of what you said. Um, so I will um, close with that. Thanks for your attention. You bet. Thank you very much, Jonathan. What we'll do next is kick it into the final rebuttal phase before the open dialogue. So, Matt, I've got the timer set for 10 minutes. Thanks so much. The floor is all yours. Now I'm betting you can hear me. You bet. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, yeah. Jonathan, in his opening statement, basically set up four answers. Myth, hallucination, conspiracy, or real, which is a version of Liar, Lunatic, and Lord. And when I say that he omitted legend, I said that on purpose, even though I did, in fact, recognize and remember that he included myth there. Because when he talked about the myth option, what he said, and unless I, I heard it wrong, um, is that Jesus's followers didn't claim that he rose from the dead, and they would have been surprised, or as surprised as anyone else, uh, to hear that this were th was the case, which baffles me a little bit, since you would think that, um, given, you know, various accounts of what was said beforehand, I don't know why they would be surprised that the guy who told them, essentially, that I'm, I'm God, I'm going to rise again type thing, uh, I, I really, some of them were going to be a little bit surprised, maybe, but to just write it off as that. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about legend. I'm saying, see, Jonathan's working within the context of, hey, here are these elements reporting the stories. How do I make the most sense within the context of the story if I begin with the assumption these events happen? I don't think that that's actually justified. I think that the, re the, the events um, are not actually warranted for belief and acceptance based on the evidence available. He defended against a lot of things that weren't part of my response. Why would they martyr? Uh, that's irrelevant. There are martyrs for countless religions that we both reject. Um, I'm fine with the notion that people sincerely believed and were wrong, that we, what we see uh, we, we, with alien abductions, with coronavirus conspiracies, with flat earthers, with pretty much every religion that both of us would reject, are a bunch of people who sincerely believed and reported all sorts of amazing things and yet were wrong. And if we were to use this standard of evidence of, hey, I've got an ancient book and nothing else, and from that, we can infer that these people were writing and, and you know, who they were writing to and what those people understood. Um, I don't know how, that you wouldn't wind up letting in a bunch of other religions that you reject under that same uh, standard of evidence. But he mentioned at one point that the best explanation for the actions of, the, of, of those people is, is my, my paraphrasing, is that God took human form, sacrificed himself, resurrected, and left no strong evidence or left nothing that I would consider strong evidence. I guess we're debating Jonathan seems to think that it's strong evidence. I don't know how you reach the conclusion that magic is a more likely option than demonstrably flawed thinkers thinking flawed. Um, I don't see that there's anything to explain here. There's just a claim. It'd be like saying, hey, I saw this guy walk on water. How do you explain that? Well, was it maybe frozen underneath it? Did he get like a plexiglass thing and put it underneath it so that it hid that? Why am I trying to explain how this event happened when the only thing that we have to say that the event happened is somebody's claim that it actually happened? Uh, meanwhile, I've seen people do that exact trick on TV, but he presented what he called a maximal data case, but it was bare bones because of time. And so we begin with after Jesus died and was buried, and my question is, did that actually happen? Jesus' followers would have been surprised as anybody else. I don't understand that they would have necessarily been a surprise as anybody else, though I would certainly realize that somebody resurrecting is going to be a surprise. It's just funny that the people who were his followers, um, we don't seem to have a lot of accounts from them. 1 Corinthians 15.3 is Paul. Paul, and by the way, this is all of it. 
So the bulk of Jonathan's case is Paul and Luke, Luke you know. And so Paul is not a witness. Um, he's not a witness to the life, ministry, death, or resurrection of Jesus. So I don't know how anything that Paul ever says could be considered strong evidence for the resurrection when he's not remotely an eyewitness. He claims to have had an experience with the risen Jesus after that, but there's no demonstration and no evidence for that. Um, Paul expects the church in Corinthians to understand him. Of course he does because they've heard the same stories. Um, Paul tries to do this, you know, he's the least of the apostles yet. Apostles, yes, because he wasn't actually there. Uh, Luke is a companion, and he, so he's going to back up this story. Can we trust Luke Acts? It's supposedly grounded in eyewitness testimony, and yet we have no way to investigate or determine that there is, in fact, eyewitness testimony or how reliable those eyewitnesses are um, or what the nature of their actual accounts is. It's, it's like saying, hey, I've got a bunch of witnesses, and you can't talk to them is exactly what we're dealing with here. Luke claims that he spoke to eyewitnesses. So what? That doesn't tell us whether or not their testimony is reliable or accurate. Um, the second test that he presented for, for Luke, I didn't get to jot down the first one, was that the evidence uh, that Luke was a traveling companion is irrelevant because traveling partners, like if I told you that I saw Elvis after he was dead and that there were a bunch of other people who saw it too, and then my traveling companion comes along and says, yep, Matt said he saw Elvis. That doesn't do anything to tell us whether or not I saw Elvis. Um, the we... That he, that he referenced, that's two people who weren't there for the ministry death or proposed resurrection, we, uh, and so I don't know how it can remotely count as good evidence or strong evidence. At best, you've got second or third-hand accounts. Um, John 20 is a passage from an anonymous book, and he's convinced that it was written by John, you know, uh, and I get that. I understand why people do, but it's not like we can demonstrate that at all, and if you pick up you know, if you look into the, the Bibles, the only thing we can say is that we don't know for sure who wrote that and that all of our copies are anonymous. Um, the author, the impressive thing there was that the author knows the name of the priest. Well, assuming that there's any sort of investigation or discussion to be had, um, A, how do we know that the, he's right about the name of the priest? And what difference does it make if he's right about the name of the priest? That's like me knowing, you know, that Colonel Parker managed Elvis. I, I didn't meet either one of them, and yet these are facts that I know. Now, things are a little bit different here in the sense that I have access to a lot more information than disciples did, and I don't want to be uh, anachronistic. However, when I listened to, to Jonathan going through the, his rebuttal, he basically went over the same points that he made. Um, I hopefully have cleared up that my distinction over the myth thing uh, is not me overlooking that he included legend and just dismissed it. It's that the way that he included legend, I don't feel is dismissible. Um, the, the accounts that there was a Jesus person, I'm okay with. The accounts that Jesus died, well, I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus died. If he existed, I'm convinced he died because, you know, that's just the way life works, that everybody who's ever exist had, had, has either died or is still alive. It's curious that I'm, you know, talking with people who think that here's the, or one of the only exceptions to someone who both died and is still alive, uh, and yet they can't produce that person to come in here and defend any of this, and which is why for hundreds and thousands of years now, we've just been sitting around arguing. Uh, he mentioned that I'm not sure what sort of evidence could be presented, uh, and that this is somehow a, a flaw in my epistemology. That's a load of crap because what needs to be demonstrated is a causal connection 
connection and a realistic connection to show that the supernatural is real, that it can interact with the material world. I don't know what shape that evidence will come. It will convince me the instant it's there, and none of it matters because God could present this evidence, and this is one of the things that I tried to address, that if God comes in and says, hey, uh, I can present all the best evidence for you, but I'm not going to, even him just saying that would be light, leaps and bounds better evidence than anything that we currently have. So it's not like I need to explain an empty tomb because I'm not aware that there is any empty tomb to explain. And thousands of years after something, I don't even know what finding an empty tomb would be. What, I, what I'm being asked to explain is how a report from an anonymous source or several anonymous sources that don't agree, you can't, you can't, uh, put the different resurrection accounts together and come up with a, a cohesive story because they're in disagreement about what happened when. And we have no demonstration of an empty tomb or a death on a cross or a resurrection or even the details of any specific sermon. And I just did a video the other day on the loaves and fishes and how absolutely absurd it is to think that there were thousands of people following Jesus around in the first century in this area and nobody brought any food. I mean, this is the level that we're talking about there could be the best evidence possible. And what we have is an absolute dearth of good evidence and people doing their best to say, you know what? I find these stories convincing and compelling. And so I'm going to make the case that they are. I don't find them convincing and compelling. And this could easily be fixed by an actual presentation of really good, strong evidence for this. And instead, all we end up getting, because all we have is people pointing to the Bible, these anonymous, unsourced, accounts that we cannot investigate. I don't know how anybody consider it strong evidence. I can understand how somebody could, could say that, well, even if it's not strong evidence, it's enough to convince me. That's fine. Um, that, that comes down to how flawed your epistemology is, how, how likely you are to believe things on not particularly good evidence. Thanks, Matt. We'll jump into the open dialogue section. So keep those questions coming, folks, if you have them. I'm keeping an eye on the live chat, and this will go for about maybe 50 to 60 minutes, maybe less, kind of get, play it by ear. And the floor is all yours, Matt and Jonathan. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so much, Matt. Um, sure. Let me, let me just uh, understand exactly the extent to which you will walk along the road with me where we depart company. Um, on, would, would you say that uh, there's strong evidence that Jesus died on the cross or not? No. Okay, so... Um, what do you make of the testimonies in Paul and Acts and the Gospels? I don't consider testimonies to be strong evidence. And then when you point to Paul right off the bat, was Paul there when Jesus died on the cross? So you would dismiss all testimony? No, I didn't say I would dismiss all testimony. Was Paul there when Jesus was supposedly killed on a cross? We don't know. Okay, do we have any reason to think that Paul was there? Uh, no, but he may have been, but we don't know. Yeah, and if Paul was there, don't you think Paul would have said, I was there? Isn't uh, that really plausible? But Paul does mention that, uh, he does mention the testimony of Peter and James and... Yeah, that's not what I asked. Well, if I, if you, okay, Jonathan, if you were there and you witnessed Jesus's death on the cross and you then wrote about it, wouldn't, wouldn't or, you know, a decade or a couple of decades later, would you say that you went and talked to the other apostles and you did all this stuff? Or would you just say, I was there, I saw the man die? Okay, I, I, I don't, I, it doesn't matter for the sake of my argument that Paul was there. I don't think that the only good evidence... Well, it does if you're counting him as a witness, because if he wasn't there, then no, he's not a witness. He still count his evidence if he wasn't there. Because he's he not reports, a witness. 
you, know, you, you, you just a minute ago suggested that Paul is a witness that we should listen to. And I'm saying I have no evidence that Paul's a witness. But he, but he is a witness to what was being proclaimed by the other apostles, in yes. particular. And Peter I'm a and witness. James. And I'm, well, a, I'm a witness to what the National Enquirer re reports about Elvis. But that doesn't mean I'm an actual witness about what's actually happened with Elvis. Peter is someone who was present at the cross. We know, um, or present with Jesus at his trial, rather. And James was the brother of Jesus, whom surely would have known that uh, that his uh, his own brother had died on the cross. And so I think that he is a credible um, secondhand report as to... I don't have a report from Jesus' brother. Um, well, what we have, if you think the book of James is written by Jesus' brother, then, then we do. But, but, but I don't necessarily think okay. that. So, this so is the problem. So, so this is the problem of having a big storybook that has a bunch of different people trying to tell different parts of the same story and no idea who any of them are, or no way to investigate or find out. Okay. So you, you wouldn't, so, I mean, take the book of Acts, for example. Um, you think, so the author of Luke Acts was, was someone who was a traveling companion of Paul who has ample access to the witnesses Paul in Jerusalem. Sorry? I, I, Paul, Paul or Peter, because I, I thought it was Paul too. And then a minute ago you said Peter, and I just want to make sure I wasn't confused. I'm sorry, I, I misspoke if I did. I said Luke was a traveling companion of Paul yeah, and had ample access to the treasure trove of living witnesses in Jerusalem. Um, yeah. And because he was present with Paul in Jerusalem, well, was in prison I, with I Paul think that's Jerusalem. a really flawed assumption to assume that there was a treasure trove of witnesses. How do you know there was a treasure trove of witnesses? Doesn't that presume that the events being reported were true? And isn't that the very thing we're trying to prove? And therefore that claim is a fundamentally circular argument. No, because the, these, so I think part of your, part of the problem in your epistemology is you make this distinction between a claim and an ev an evidence. And yes. you've made this a number of your debates. And I totally disagree with that approach. Um, because, You're a claim, wrong. because a claim is evidence. No, it's, no, uh, it's not. It's to be explained. It, it's no, a claim is not evidence. If I say I have a hundred dollar bill in my wallet, that's a claim. It is a statement about a fact. It is not evidence in and of itself. It, it well, it it's more probable on the hypothesis that you do. Especially, I mean, if if you are, I don't care um, about more. If, this is so listen dishonest. to me, Matt. Listen to me. Go especially ahead. if, especially if if you are a trusted friend who has a track record of being habitually reliable, habitually truth, truth, Thank truthful. You. Um, then uh, if I come to you and uh, and you say to me, I have you know a hundred bucks in my in my pocket or what have you, then that is something I'm going to believe you on, right? So Thank that you. is a form no. of evidence. I, I completely agree with you, and you've just demonstrated how your objection is fundamentally flawed and my epistemology is sound. Because what you cited was the evidence for my likelihood to reliably tell you the truth. You're using, here's the claim, my claim is I have $100 in my wallet. That is not evidence. What you're using is your understanding of how reliable and trustworthy I am. That is the evidence that supports whether or not my claim is likely to be true. I have no problem with that. Please present the likelihood that these stories are true. I don't know who wrote them. How do I know how reliable they are? I don't know who these people are. I have no way to investigate any of the facts about it. So all we have are personal testimonies, which is anecdotal evidence. It cannot rise to the point of, of leading anyone to reasonably conclude that somebody rose from the dead. So it's, it's, uh, it's an inductive argument um, The the... So we've got numerous points of historical confirmation in the Gospels and Acts, which cumulatively um, demonstrates that the authors of the Gospels and Acts, regardless of who they were, were close up to the facts and that they are substantially trustworthy. They have reliable access to information. 
concerning the, the events they talk about. So for example, um, are, are, you, are you acquainted with the argument from undesigned coincidences in the Gospels and Acts? Yes. Okay, but, so- But you're, you, go ahead. Um, so I'll, I'll give one example and perhaps you can comment on it. So for example, in um, this one well-known example is, um, okay, so if we go to John 12, this is where we have um, Jesus uh, approached to Bethany with the 12, verse one, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And they give a dinner for him there and so forth. And the following day, um, verse 12, uh, he has a triumphal entry, right? He enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Sure. So that would be five days before Passover, if John is correct on that particular point. Now, is John correct on that particular point? Well, we can evaluate that. So if we go over to Mark's account, chapter 11, this is the parallel account. And he says, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, the men of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat on tie and bring it. So if we, um, and Mark actually telescopes the narrative um, with respect to John. So he, he doesn't mention he actually arrives in Bethany the night before and it's in, it's in the morning he rises into Jerusalem. But if we assume that John is correct for the sake of argument, get to verse 11, it says he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. When he looked around to everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. That would be the evening of five days before Passover if John is correct. Um, and bear in mind, Mark hasn't given us that detail of, of the five days before Passover. Verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So that would be the morning of four days before Passover. Verse 19, when evening came to the way of the city, that would be the evening of the four days before Passover. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. That would be the morning of three days before Passover. Then in Mark 13, you have the Olivet Discourse on the Men of Olives, where Jesus talks to his disciples on the Men of Olives, which is midway between Jerusalem, where he's been all day, and Bethany, where his accommodation is for the night. And so we can assume, I think, fairly and reasonably that that's the evening of three days before Passover. And then chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover. So it synchronizes exactly as you would expect, given the historical reliability of, of those accounts. Um, and building a cumulative argument from numerous examples of not only undesigned coincidences, but also extra biblical corroborations and so forth, unexplained allusions, I think we have a powerful cumulative argument for trust, for an inductive argument for trusting the Gospels to be substantially trustworthy. How many years apart were Mark and John written? We don't know. I don't take a position on the dating of, of the Gospels. Well, you are taking a position on the dating of Gospels. You're just not giving a date because the argument that you're presenting presumes that these things were coincidences that were written independently. But if they're both writing accounts of stories that were told, how remarkable is it that somebody would say, hey, Jesus was in this area around Passover? That, that doesn't demonstrate that just because... So it's like if I made a list of 10 things um, about Elvis... The fact that I got eight of them correct doesn't mean that he was abducted by aliens. It doesn't mean that he survived his death and travels around. And if I tell parts of a story that were published and told a decade before I ever started you know, writing on this, how is that a coincidence that needs to be explained when there's stories going around? The, the notion that we need to explain which parts of the story were written down is bizarre to me because we have a story that people are telling some versions of it get written down they don't agree they, they agree on some details they disagree on others there's a hypothesis about shared documentation about mark being written first and matthew basically copying off of mark and luke potentially copying off of mark we don't know however you want you want to look at this and say hey they both both said that jesus was in town around passover and my thing is so what that, that has nothing to do with the divine, with the supernatural, with a resurrection, with any of that stuff. It's the most mundane pedestrian. It's like, you might as well say, look, two of the gospels reported that Jesus ate lamb um, 
along with potatoes and Rocky. Oh no, that'd be alcoholic. Yeah, screw it. We'll give Jesus some alcohol and Rocky um, at the at the 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 final dinner with with the disciples. Cool. How can I ever verify that? Why would I care that they wrote down the same thing? None of that gets to the truth of whether or not there was a resurrection. So if we're going to be talking about whether or not there's strong evidence for a resurrection, Jesus being in Jerusalem around Passover isn't strong evidence for a resurrection. So uh, you're you're completely correct that uh, the example I gave doesn't pertain to the resurrection. The point is that I, I, I understood the point. Let, let me finish. Let me no, the well, point. I was I wasn't done, but go ahead. Okay. I let right, you right, talk right. for a long time. I understood the point was to show that these these corresponding accounts demonstrate the reliability and truthfulness of the witnesses that are reporting the in the Gospels. Am I correct? And that's your point. Correct. Correct. So I wasn't an idiot who missed your point. I just hadn't finished yet. Okay. Go ahead. The fact that they uh, that you consider them account reporting mundane things as if that means they're truthful and honest doesn't mean that they are accurately reporting other things that happen. I have, I have no problem with, with them reporting what they believed to be true, but what people believe to be true is independent from what's actually true. And so you can say all day long that even though we don't know who wrote those gospels, and I would agree, that they are generally trustworthy, I think I would agree that they are generally trustworthy on some aspects of it, but I don't think that me telling you a story about, uh, you know, Elvis doing Blue Hawaii means that if I also tell you a story about how he, res he rose from the dead and was abducted by aliens, my truthfulness is no longer relevant. It's not about whether or not I'm an active liar. It's about whether or not I'm likely to be correct or whether or not I have a bias in my story. And it's undeniable the gospel authors have a bias, right? Sure, but uh, I don't, I mean, yeah, sure. I, I wouldn't concede, I wouldn't dispute that. Um, but that doesn't mean that they weren't reliable or truthful reporters. I, I know, but that also doesn't mean they are. That's my point. I'm not saying that they're not reliable. I'm saying you don't get to assume they are. Right. But the point is that when when you consider um, numerous instances of verification of the gospels between themselves the way they interlock in a casual and subtle way the way that they intersect with extra biblical secular sources i could discuss many of those uh that provides uh, a prima facie basis for trusting them on issues that we cannot directly cross-check them on because it, it shows that they're close up to the facts and that substantially that they are substantially trustworthy and reliable in the reportage of the events they talk about yeah, th th that'll never fly. I love my mother, and my mother has sent me email, has sent me letters, uh, essentially talk, telling me that she wouldn't lie to me, and God is real, and Jesus is real. I don't believe my mother's lying to me. I just believe she's wrong. I believe she's sincerely conveying information that she's wrong about because she. So, in, in the case of this, you, you're wanting to say that somebody's reliable when you have no access to that person at all, other than here's something they wrote, something fairly small that they wrote that you can't go out and investigate. You can't determine the truth of any of it. So you don't know how reliable they are on the parts that you can't. You don't even know if they're reliable about the Passover thing, even though it's co coincidentally reported. Well, we do because I just showed the the, the way the interlock casually. So it points to the truth of, of the narrative. No, it doesn't. It does not. It, 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 it does not confirm that that's what's actually happened. Are you saying that four people couldn't get something wrong? No, but that's not so, the argument. Okay. So the argument is that they fit together in a casual way. So for example, Mark, uh, I mean, Mark and John seem to be independent on this. So Mark telescopes the narrative. It's John that gives us the extra details. Uh, and 
where he arrives in Bethany the night before. It's in the morning. He he enters Jerusalem. Mark 13 doesn't even give us the the time the timestamp. You have to do the the inference because the Mount of Olives is midway between Jerusalem, where he's been all day in Bethany, where his accommodation is for the night, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so the 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 interlock in a way that that points the truth. They interlock in a casual, non-deliberate, non-designed way, uh, where you, uh, and, and furthermore, um, John. Uh, John actually contradicts Mark on the uh, the issue of when exactly Jesus was anointed at Bethany. In Mark, it's after the triumphal entry. In John, it's before. So uh, if if jo if John is simply using Mark, then that um, contradiction seems rather surprising. Yeah, and one of the things that I keep hearing, and I don't know if you fall into this category, but when people point to that where they disagree, uh, I've had a lot of theists tell me that that makes them even more strongly convinced. Do you think the part where they disagree makes him is does that more strongly convince you? Um, it depends um, on the nature of, of the variation. So there's a phenomenon that I call um, uh, that I call reconcilable variations, which is when you have two accounts which appear on first blush to to contradict one another, but then upon learning some new information or inspecting the accounts more closely, they turn out to actually uh, fit together uh, naturally without straining after all. And in that case, I would argue that that is evidence for independence, which indeed is evidence for the for the reliability of the account. Yeah, except that you can't make an argument for independence when both people who are writing something have access to the stories ahead of time. What do you mean by that? Well, it doesn't have to be a Q document. It doesn't have to be uh, another gospel. It could just be these are the stories that are going around, and this guy wrote this version of the story, and this guy wrote this version of the story. And the, the source of the particular thing claims where they claim, it's not coincidental. It is derivative of the... Um, the, the oral tradition. Yeah, so the earth source um, idea is something Richard Carrier put forward in, on his blog, uh, responding to the undesigned coincidence argument. And other, other people have put forward that objection as well. I've responded to it quite extensively at my site. I'll just very briefly respond to it here. Um, there's a number of problems with that. One is uh, that often you find intersections between different uh, pericopes in the gospel accounts and uh, the oral traditions would have been would have corresponded to, to um, they wouldn't have the, like a, an earth source or, or tradition which contained the entire gospel accounts. So the fact that you have these interlockings between different um, accounts or different peric pericopes, different stories, uh, even if even if it is derivative from from earlier oral traditions which predate the gospels, uh, that would still be an example of an undesigned coincidence, and so it wouldn't uh, refute the argument. Uh, it's also ad hoc. It's invoked only to only to uh, get around the hypothesis of truth, rather than the simplest explanation, which I think is that these events really really happened. Um, so there, uh, there there's a number of, of issues with that, and, and also evidence for independence. And, and the particular example I gave in Mark and John, I, I would argue that uh, John and Mark are reporting independently on that particular issue. And and I still don't see how that makes any difference because. Are we suggesting that someone who we consider truthful uh, couldn't also be honestly mistaken or even actively lying about a, a secondary statement? Uh, well, it provides evidence that they are that. That's not my question. No, listen to me. There, it's cum cumulatively provides evidence that the authors of the Gospels and Acts are close up to the facts and that they are. They, they are they have reliable access to information and that they're habitually truthful no and it doesn't it, it shows that they at least had access to the same story whether they have access to the same story because they heard the same story or because they are actually witnesses of the same story are two independent things but even if they were witnesses writing what they think happened that does not mean that their attempt to be honest and accurate 
means that we have good access to what the facts are. This is this is what how many people have been falsely convicted because somebody was absolutely convinced that that's the person that attacked them. Um, you know, okay, we're not talking about like the, the eyewitness testimony that you decided just to shrug off. I'm saying, if I find someone like, I, I won't use you. We'll stick with my mom. My mom is absolutely. I'm convinced most of the time. Sometimes she lies. I'm convinced most of the time she is actively trying to tell me the truth. The problem is that when she tells me what she's convinced of, and I ask, what's the reason that you're convinced of it? She doesn't present arguments. She doesn't present evidence. It is trusting. And that's exactly what you seem to be arguing for here, that we have these accounts in the gospel, and the gospel authors are otherwise trustworthy, and therefore we should take their word for it, when they report that someone was raised from the dead. Now, I will never, ever accept that as a good reason to believe that somebody was raised from the dead. But if the story is in fact true, then it seems to me we should, if there's a God, have access to much better evidence so that you don't have to come to me and say, hey, look, I really researched these gospels and this one said this and this one said this it has nothing to do with the resurrection. I think these guys are trying to be honest. I think they're telling the story as best we can. This is the best evidence that we have. Well, if the best evidence we have is still insufficient to demonstrate the likely truth of the proposition and for resurrection, our priors are not minimal. They're zero. Apart from the Bible claiming that Jesus also raised the dead, which for which we have no evidence of that either. Do, do you think that, that the dead crawled out of their graves and and marched on Jerusalem? Do you think that the, you know, all of these other supernatural things happened where the, the you know, where, where do you draw the line on, hey, and a, 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 someone I consider who I've never met, but someone who I consider to be a reliable witness is telling me about a miracle. How do you reject all the claims of the the spirit men from other religions who claim that they don't eat food, that they live off prana, and they have acolytes, and they have people who are, are willing disciples of them, who follow them around. Now, you can't test them. How do, you, how do you say that those people aren't tied to the facts, and yet the ones you're citing are? So the, the point is, if, if the Gospels and Acts are based on eyewitness testimony, then we have to take seriously that what they say concerning the nature and variety of the resurrection encounters with the risen Jesus goes back to the early apostolic eyewitnesses. And then that's what needs to be explained by looking at sifting through the hypotheses that I offered. Namely, uh, the um, as, and it argues against the, the myth hypothesis. And then we have to consider, okay, were they honestly mistaken or were they deliberately lying? And the fact that they're substantially trustworthy is evidence that they were not deliberately lying, although um, it's not conclusive proof, but it is evidence for that conclusion. Uh, and uh, you could also look at the fact that, we're willing, that the apostles were willing to die as martyrs for their testimony, which also contributes evidence to the fact that they were uh, not deliberately lying about what they allegedly saw. I just asked you how you distinguish between the people who you think you're, you're being honest uh, and have access to the facts for the religion that you accept, how you distinguish between those and the people who are making claims for other religions that you don't accept. And instead of giving me anything close to how you would tell the difference, which is what epistemology is about, how I tell the difference between, hey, this religion, you're, you're basically saying these religious accounts are true and these religious accounts over here are not true. And you have no better evidence for your truth than they have for theirs. Because what you have is a claim from someone who you find truthful. Now, are you just going to say that for all those other religions or for those other supernatural accounts, you just don't find those people truthful? Uh, yeah. 
Exactly. Okay. Then I don't find yours truthful, and there's no point in having a debate because we no longer give a damn about epistemology. We're just going to go with how our gut feels, right? Well, we're going to look at the evidence. and when I, I've been asking for evidence. Do you have any evidence that doesn't come from the Bible? No. Okay. So, so you, you have nothing but a hearsay account from an unidentifiable source. We have evidence from the New Testament, including Paul and the Gospels and so forth. Yeah. So why don't you start responding to the evidence rather than just dismissing it? It's not evidence. It's claims, not evidence. There is no evidence. There is no physical evidence. There is no... Uh, what you can do is you can say that there are people who wrote stories and you find them compel compelling, and okay. I don't. If you're, if you're just going to keep dismissing the evidence, then we're done. Yes, we are. We, we are. And you know whose fault it is? The God that you believe in, because the God that you believe in is too stupid to understand that when he presents something in a way where it's indistinguishable from other things that are false, that's the end of the conversation. I didn't make up the rules about what counts as evidence. Oh, did he just leave? No, I don't. I mean, he's definitely not here, but I don't know. If, I, don't I heard him say we're done. I don't know if it was. I'd be surprised if it was a rage. I'm pretty quit. sure he just quit because I'm not going to accept the stories from his book while he's not giving me any reason why he's rejecting the stories from other people's books. You're so I guess to... we can take questions. Yeah, well, I guess we'll jump into the Q&A. This is what happens. This is what happens, by the way, when you debate someone who is who you've had blocked for a while, who repeatedly suggests that you're running a dishonest show and that you only take the low-hanging fruit, and then you come into a debate and they decide to make themselves look like the low-hanging fruit that. You know, Jonathan could have just called the show and saved me a bunch of time, but I guess we'll go with questions. Let's see. Huh. Well, we'll jump into the Q&A, folks, so thanks for your questions, and give me one moment to pull these up. Appreciate all of them. We've got a good amount, so we'll kind of run through these as quick as possible. Thanks for your question. First one coming in from... Scott Duke said, thanks for the wide range of debate topics on your channel. Appreciate it, Scott. That means a lot and all credit to the speakers. Woody, thanks for your super sticker. Appreciate that support. Let me, uh, as I just realized that the screen is, let's see. It's, uh, I've got to fix it so they can see you because they're OBS scrambles if we have somebody, or uh, Zoom scrambles on me if we have someone leave early. Let's see. But, yes, folks, we will continue in just a moment. So, one moment. Okay, thanks for your question. Coming in from Smoky Saint. I think this is something from their debate the other night in Inside Joke. Wizard words is a thing now. Deal with it. I have no idea what that means, but we hope you're well, uh, Smoky. And uh, Lori Mikola, thanks for your question, said, Evidence was in the title of this video. I don't know. I think maybe they're just referring to the fact that the, the actual title was strong evidence. That's true. We do shorten yeah. the title, folks. That's just because it makes it easier where people can see the whole title on their mobile device. And so, yes, it is true that Strong Evidence is the official title. Pants L. Jones, thanks for your question, said, let's see. Yeah, if I can, if I can jump in for just a second. 
Uh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, the title of the, of the video that we're streaming says evidence, but the agreed upon topic beforehand was strong evidence. Because if somebody came to me and said, hey, there's evidence for the resurrection, I'm not dumb enough to say, no, there's not, because I understand anecdotal evidence is still evidence. Bad evidence is still evidence. Garbage evidence is still evidence. Evidence that rises to the level of curiosity but isn't sufficient to actually result in belief soundly, still evidence. The, the issue is, is there enough evidence? And in this case, Jonathan thought there was strong evidence, and yet he comes with nothing but anonymous accounts from a book that he likes. Next, we have a question from, this one is from, let's see, well, she said not to ask her questions, so we'll just withdraw those. Thanks for those, Sarah. Justin Maurer, PhD in Pine Creek Studies. Thanks for your question, says, uh, let's see. It's difficult when we don't have uh, Jonathan to answer these. I'm gonna have to, I'm sorry, folks. We're going to have to skip those. What we'll do is, if you do a super chat in a future debate, what we'll do is, since we're not reading those that are intended for Jonathan today, we'll kind of like, just let me know in the future debate, say, hey, James, one of my super chats wasn't read in the last debate, and we'll count one of your normal chats as a super chat in that future one. Justin Maurer, let's see. By the way, there was somebody in chat who... who, who um, uh, mentioned that my my weight uh you're off by like 25 so i'm still right at under 200 so whoever was like oh 225 no no no, i'm not not quite back to 225 yet <laughs> but i did but i have i have put on weight in quarantine so who knows what's going to happen <laughs> gotcha i did not see that but uh let's see we we do have a live and active audience still people are definitely still chiming in so we ask folks the only rules of the channel is a reminder, no hate speech, and we ask that you would not harass anybody. Hate speech, we're not going to give you a warning. We'll just ban you. Uh, if you are harassing somebody, if you're attacking the person, we'll give you, depending on how bad it is, we'll usually give you a warning before banning you. Smoked Saint says, let's see, I'm... Let's see. Okay, Hunter Bailey, thanks for your question, said, Matt, regarding, quote, hearsay, unquote, how do you account yeah. for the historical present found in Mark? And they put in parentheses, accounts for the vividness of the text, especially small details which are most understood as reflecting eyewitness memory. Why? So th this is another thing where we're basically asking the same question. So it's like, how do you account for someone writing this particular thing in the gospel? And my account for it is that almost certainly they believed they were reporting something that was factual. That is independent from whether or not they were accurate on the facts. And so, you know, I, I didn't even, there were things that I was prepared to talk about. Um, so he had talked about Mark... 16 uh, we didn't talk about the fact that the last 11 verses or so of mark are added on after the fact mark 16 ends at verse 8 in the oldest manuscripts and it just says trembling and bewildered the women fled from the tomb they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid and then immediately there's a new verse there that says hey when jesus rose early on the first day of the week he appeared first to mary magdalene out of whom he had driven seven demons and she went and told those so there's this problem a serious problem with the ending of mark now i don't know what the explanation is i don't know if it was a a third or fourth century interpolation where somebody added that to mark but the fact is that the oldest gospel that we know of has um 
the first eight verses of its final chapter, uh, chapter 16, basically tells the story that, you know, oh, Jesus, uh, the, you know, the, the stone's been rolled away and Jesus is risen, hurrah, end of story. There was nothing there about the Great Commission. And what got added was not only the Great Commission, but it's this, you know, hey, if you want to know who's a true believer, these are the signs that will accompany them. They can drive out demons. They speak in tongues. They can pick up snakes with their hands. They can drink deadly poison. All that stuff ends up in Mark. And if you're going to talk about the author of the Gospel of Mark being trustworthy, you have to at least say, all right, it's trustworthy up to 16.8, and then everything, you know, 9 through 20 in, in chapter 16 is no longer trustworthy. But now you're taking the published book that may or may not be trustworthy and you are deciding what, what portions of it are accurate and which portions of it are not with no evidence no ways to investigate it the only evidence that you have is to come in and say hey oh jonathan's back the only evidence that you have is to come in and say hey uh we know that if you handle venomous snakes you're probably going to get bitten at some point you're probably going to die and so that's what's happened over and over again Gotcha, and Jonathan is back. So uh, glad. Uh, as you said something about the a waiting room, Jonathan. Do you? Oh, you're okay. Sorry? Gotcha. So we yeah, uh, we we yeah. can give me one second. I'm just gonna readjust in OBS. Thought okay. we lost you there. Let's see here. I, I thought he said we're done and then clicked off. And if yeah, that's I, not actually, can you hear me? Can you guys hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, Matt, I just wanted to, to apologize. I um, was a little bit frustrated with you constantly interrupting me and dismissing sure. everything you were saying with that interaction. And uh, so I got a bit frustrated there. So I apologize. Let's see. We, oh, can't, oh, we can't hear you, Matt. I think that sure. bug, Matt, I think that bug is acting up where we can't hear your audio. I whatever I don't think we could hear you in whatever your response go. was, Matt. I'm I'm back. Gotcha. I'm back. I, I just said I just it was fine. The fact of the matter is, in these sorts of interactions, um, yeah, I interrupt people. I think Jonathan interrupted me at least once too. I know I'm more prone to it than other. I get the frustration, but at the end of the day, if the if the foundation of how we determine what is strong evidence or what is sufficient evidence is just I'm going to accept that this person's truthful and telling me the truth and you're not, well, then why are we bothering to have a discussion? Okay. Because but if we can't get beyond that, we're stuck. Okay. The, I, I didn't see that we were making much progress um, in the discussion because you didn't seem to really get the concept of an inductive argument. Uh, oh my God. Should I, should I rage quit now? Cause you're calling me stupid pretending that I don't know what an inductive argument is. Well, I Sci Science is entirely inductive. I've given this lecture a hundred times. Well, I was making the case for the substantial trustworthy of the Gospels based on the inductive argument, which you didn't seem to, you, you just dismissed. But just because it's right over here doesn't mean it's right over here. And I completely accept that. But there's an inductive argument for the substantial trustworthiness of the Gospel accounts. And indeed, they're grounding in the testimony of credible eyewitnesses. If the so, most trustworthy person you know came to you and said, I was just abducted by aliens, carried off to another planet, impregnated, cloned, and delivered back here, and I have no other evidence for it. Do you take their word for it? Oops, sorry. No, we wouldn't take their word for it. Okay. What if five people said that? 
we need to look at the particulars of the case. Uh, so we need to look at, okay, so what's the nature of what's being claimed? We need to look at the hypothesis that they were, that they were sincerely wrong. We'd have to look at the, um, the possibility that they were deliberately lying, and we'd have to evaluate those hypotheses on a case-by-case -case basis. So we need to know more about the particulars of the case before we can adjudicate such things. I agree. What are, what are the particulars of the case that we can make an argument that a, any resurrection has ever occurred? What evidence do we have that would support the claims of a resurrection? Uh, we have the fact that uh, the apostle, we, we have the evidence that the apostles claimed Jesus rose from the dead. We have that from Paul. Uh, Those are claims. Yeah, and this is where I dispute your distinction that you want to make between claims and evidence, Matt. Okay, but it, don't aren't the, aren't the other aren't the people who, if you're going to say so, you haven't done anything. This is this is what I I asked the question. How do you distinguish the, the 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 claims that you're willing to accept from the ones that you reject? And so I tried with other religions, and that didn't go very well. And then I tried with an alien abduction story, and that's still not going well because what you're coming back with is just more of you are convinced that these people are telling the truth. You're not convinced that the alien abduction people are telling the truth, but you have no no foundation for suggesting that they're not. Well, we have to look at the particulars of the case, right? So we, we have to know, okay, so are these substantially trustworthy witnesses? We have to uh, uh, look at, okay, would they be um, likely to lie about this? We need to look at, would they be... Uh, now, could they have been honestly mistaken? Um, could this be a, a dream that they're trying to relate or something like along those lines? I, I agree with all of that. And, and also, I, yeah, you, you also, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, you, you, could, you could also look at the, the prior probability. I mean, uh, alien spacecrafts, given the hugeness of the universe, right? So the, the sun is 93 million miles away, the next nearest star, Alpha Centauri, is 26 trillion miles away, and there's about 200 billion galaxy, stars in our galaxy and about 200 billion galaxies in our universe. Uh, the prior probability of any alien spacecraft making it to Earth is, is vanishingly small, right? No, I, I'm not necessarily convinced it's vanishingly small. The Drake equation shows the likelihood. I don't think we've been visited by aliens at all. However, no matter how small it is, because it is a natural uh, event that doesn't make any sort of appeal to anything beyond the natural world, how, how could we not determine that a natural explanation that, ex that posits nothing particularly um, that would violate the laws of physics is somehow less likely than something that does violate the laws of, of nature as we understand them. And when we have zero, like, if I were to ask you, how many resurrections, not just I had a heart attack and somebody used the paddles, but like, boom, we're going to call you dead, we're going to bury you for, for a couple days, and then you're back. How many of those have we ever scientifically verified in the entire history of the world? Um, of, of, of supernatural events? I, I don't care whether it's supernatural or not. I, I'm not making, I don't care how the resurrection supposedly happened. This is the mistake that Lacona made when we were doing this debate, is he goes on and tries to demonstrate that reality has a supernatural realm. That's irrelevant. How many times throughout history has someone been verifiably dead, medically determined to be dead, buried for a couple of days, and then comes back to life that we can actually verify? Hey, I'm so sorry. You're cutting out a lot there. I think it's at your end. I bet I think you're back now. Uh, I'm sorry. Can, can you hear me now? Again. Yes, I can. Mm -hmm. Sure. How many times in history have we scientifically verified a resurrection? Uh, well, what do you mean by scientifically? Have we shown this person was definitely dead, dead for several days, and then is now alive again? How many times has that happened that we can verify? Um, I would say uh, one that we can verify, and that would be Jesus. 
And I would say zero because there's absolutely nothing about a handful of first century books claiming that it happened that provides any sort of scientific evidence that it did happen. And so how do you, since you think there's one and I think there's zero, and, and, and by the way, even if you think there's one, does that mean that Lazarus wasn't raised from the dead? No, I, you, you, made the, you gave the qualifier that can be verified, right? And I, I would argue that there's indirect evidence that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Wait, you, you think there's indirect evidence that Lazarus was raised? Yeah. And direct evidence that Jesus was raised, and you're convinced that Jesus is God and raised Lazarus, but you don't think there's evidence? Why, well, why, why is the evidence for Jesus' resurrection somehow scientific and the, and the Lazarus one isn't? I think, Jonathan, your connection might be stalling a little bit. I, I see you're freezing up just a bit, Jonathan. Are you able to hear us? I, I'm assuming you can still hear me. I haven't seen another issue. I'm, can you still hear me, James? I can definitely hear you, and I can still see you moving. I think uh, Jonathan may have locked up. Maybe, let's see. Okay. We can, oh, no. oh, I heard him. I can hear you. Let me see if I can fix this. I think even if... Can you uh, hear me? Yeah. Yep. I think even if we have to, just for a little bit, one thing to get the connection, like basically put a little bit less weight on your connection. There you go. If you turn your camera off, that might help just because uh, be a little bit less taxing on your connection. Yeah. Uh, let's see how it goes. And if, it, if it's, there's a problem, I'll turn the camera off. Uh, sorry about that. This camera kind of no problem. Issues. Um, yeah, so the uh, the issue with Lazarus, so I think we have indirect evidence insofar as there's an inductive argument from the substantial trustworthiness of the Gospel of John, which which is an, which is provides a prima facie basis for trusting things for which we do not have direct historiographical evidence. With the in the case for the resurrection of Jesus, I would argue that the evidence for that is substantially stronger than it is for Lazarus because we have because of the the um number of witnesses sure the number of witnesses we have for that with with lazarus we only have a single witness that would be john uh with the resurrection we have uh, the pauline corpus we have the book of acts we have the gospels um and so forth uh and i think that we have good reason to so from from paul we have good reason to think that the jerusalem apostles peter james the 12 were uh were claimed witnesses of the resurrection uh, and uh, and we can, can we also have the book of acts which substantiates that as well we have the gospels uh, so, and we also have evidence pertaining to the empty tomb as well. For, uh, for example, the fact that the tomb was discovered empty by women uh, raises you say the that probability. The fact. You say the fact that the tomb was discovered empty by women. That's not a fact. That's a claim. That it was reported as empty by women. And as, as you're, I'm sure you're very familiar with the argument that uh, the argument from embarrassment, namely that uh, it seems unlikely that uh, they would have made. Uh, female witnesses, the chief discoveries of the empty tomb, uh, if they were making up the story, they would have had male witnesses. Now, again, it doesn't prove... Yes, I find that asinine. It is, that's, like, I, that's like saying, if I were the type of person who'd commit this crime, I would never leave evidence that might in any way suggest that I did it. It's nonsense. It is a big red herring. That's not the way we should be determining what likely happened of, well, oh, it, we would have never... In, in the first century, undermine their credibility. Didn't no, they? but it doesn't matter. You're basically saying that it somehow amplifies their credibility because we should have, we, if we were making the story up, we would have picked a dude to say it. But how about, how genius does it have to be to pull a double bluff and say, you know what? They're not going to expect this coming from a woman. And then we get to claim, why would we say that women do it? It's freaking genius. 
except that it doesn't prove yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really buy the explanation that they were trying to pull future historians uh, by by. I don't either. Yeah, which, which is what basically you're trying to say. Because in the in the first century, that's not what uh, I'm trying to say. In, in first in the patriarchal society of ancient Palestine, especially in the first century, uh, it actually undermined their credibility rather than supported. Now, I'm not saying just to be clear. I'm not saying that it proves the existence of the empty tomb. I'm saying it's evidence for it. No, it's not. Next, we'll go. Oh, go ahead. Uh, if you guys had any final points, otherwise we'll. Go, oh, that's right. We do actually have the five-minute closings as well before the Q and A. And so, if you guys would like to do those, we can do that. Otherwise, if you have any last final open discussion points, we can do that too. I'll just say that I don't have anything to add in a particular closing, and Jonathan can close if he wants to, and I'm fine with taking questions. Gotcha. Jonathan, if you'd like to do your closing, the floor is all yours. Otherwise, we'll go into that Q&A. Just let me know I've got the timer set. Sure, I'll do a quick closing. And if, if Matt changes his mind and wishes to do so, he's welcome to. I'll just do a quick closing. Um, well, thanks I, again, Matt, for participating in, in this debate. Um, I'm sorry, I feel like we haven't made as much progress as I, I would have liked. Um, I, just to summarize, I think where our points of disagreement are, um, I think that there's a good uh, inductive argument for uh, taking the Gospels and Acts to be substantially trustworthy accounts and therefore, and, and I gave an example of an undesigned coincidence, there's about 10 different categories of evidence I would use uh, to bring to bear on, on that particular um, argument that the Gospels and Acts are indeed grounded in substantially credible and trustworthy eyewitness testimony. Uh, we also have the, we have the Book of Acts, um, which is not written by an eyewitness of Jesus himself, but written by someone who was a traveling companion of Paul, and we know uh, that he was uh, present with Paul in um, Acts 21 at the Jerusalem church and had ample access to the living witnesses of, of Jesus' resurrection and therefore was in a position to know what was being claimed by the resurrection encounters. And uh, and, and so we have reason to trust then uh, what he says concerning the uh, resurrection uh, encounters in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, especially in regards to Peter's preaching at Pentecost and also Luke 24. Um, we, uh, and we also have 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul um, basically indicates that what he was preaching concerning the resurrection of Christ is consistent with what's already been preached by the Jerusalem apostles, in particular Peter, James, and the Twelve. And so um, cumulatively, it, it suggests very strongly that this claim goes right back to the apostolic eyewitnesses. And um, I disagree with Matt in his distinction between claims and evidence, which is a common theme if you watch this debate. So I think it's a very um, poor epistemology uh, because uh, a claim is evidence, um, it, and the degree to which it's strong evidence will depend upon the the credibility of the witness that is offering the testimony. So if someone is a credible witness, um, then we have reason to trust their testimony. So the fact that uh, Paul, um, what he says in his epistles has been, uh, a lot of that has been vindicated in terms of undesigned coincidences that support, uh, with, with the Book of Acts, that support um, him to be a substantial um, a habitual truth teller, someone that goes up to the facts and is, is giving us a reliable report of what he, of what, uh, of what um, happened. Um, and and that, that then gives support for what he says in First Corinthians, not to mention the fact that for the, the church in Corinth had access to uh, or were acquainted with Peter's preaching. We know that from First Corinthians 1. Uh, and so then the question is then what best explains that claim? Was it that, uh, and bear in mind that that claim does go back to the original apostles, as I've shown with multiple lines of evidence. So what then best explains that claim? Did they make it up? Were the honest and mistaken, or did Jesus really rise from the dead? Um, if we and insofar as we can eliminate the former two hypotheses, that provides support, evidential support for the third 
contention because when you argue against a particular alternative, then it redistributes the probabilities and, uh, and therefore it provides evidence because it raises the probability of your hypothesis being true. And we've seen that the evidence, I think, supports that the disciples were not honestly mistaken um, because of the, the polymodal or multi-sensory nature of the, of the claimed encounters. Uh, or, and the fact that it involved not just sight, but physical contact with Jesus, group conversations with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, eating breakfast with Jesus and so forth. It was extended across a 40-day time period. So it wasn't just one brief and confusing episode. We've also seen that uh, the um, we uh, we've also seen that uh, it, it, that they were not they probably were not deliberately lying about it. And one of the evidences I gave was that the fact that they were willing to die as martyrs um, for that testimony, which uh, doesn't prove that they were not lying, but it provides evidence for that conclusion. And uh, and and so we I think have good evidence then, having just confirmed these two competing hypotheses for the resurrection hypothesis as being the best explanation of the relevant evidence. Um, Matt uh, basically dismisses uh, inductive arguments. He dismisses um, testimony as a form of evidence. Uh, he uh, basically confuses uh, or basically dif falsely differentiates between uh, claims and evidence when in fact that the real boundary line between those is, is much more complex than Matt would, would have us believe. And uh, claims can be evidence and claims need to be explained, need to be explained either in terms of being honestly mistaken, being uh, this, this, uh, deceiving others yourself or or as being grounded in reality and i think as i've shown the evidence uh, supports that these um, accounts are indeed uh, grounded in reality and jesus really did rise from the dead so i'll close with that thank you and i'm going to turn myself into a liar and take 10 seconds or, or 15 seconds because i just got accused of not understanding induction by somebody who doesn't understand induction and during his closing remarks he mentioned first of all that that he believes his sources are trustworthy because of the credibility of witnesses. The credibility of the witnesses is evidence for the proposition that the witness is trustworthy. That is the evidence you're leaning on, not the claim. What best explains that claim, when you said that, you said it a minute ago, you're looking for what best explains that situation. That's not an inductive argument. That's an abductive argument, which is the weakest form of argument, not the strongest. If you're going to suggest that I don't understand inductive argument when I pointed out that I did, and I've, I've taught on this stuff before, well, you're actually making an abductive argument that is not the strongest, and then trying to claim that claims are evidence. Well, if claims are in fact evidence, then I will claim that claims aren't evidence, and you'll have to accept this under your epistemology that as evidence against your claim. I'm done. We'll jump into those questions, folks. Thanks so much, Jonathan and Matt, for those closings. And we are going to go to the next one. This one was from Justin Maurer, PhD in Pine Creek Studies. I can't remember. I, I don't think we read this. Saving this one for you, Jonathan, they said, if the martyrdom claims are the best evidence that the apostles weren't lying, then what is the second best evidence that they weren't lying? And is lying more likely than miracles? Yes, a great question. Um, the fact that they are substantially trustworthy would be also an evidence against them lying. The fact that they um, are demonstrated to be habitually truthful through the uh, numerous lines of evidence that bear on the Gospels and Acts and the Pauline Corpus. Uh, that would also um, be a, a strong evidence uh, um, against th them lying. Um, in terms of uh, what was, uh, whether a miracle is more likely than they, they lied, uh, I, um, it, it, I mean, it, 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 so the, 
the argument that uh, that goes back to David Hume, that Bart Ehrman, et cetera, has, has championed, uh, would be that you can't ever infer a miracle as the best explanation because a miracle, by definition, is the least probable explanation, and you could never infer it as, as the most probable explanation. But again, I think that if you have sufficient evidence for the resurrection claim, I think you can overcome the vanishingly small prior probability if the probability is vanishingly small, which I'm not convinced in the case of the resurrection it is. Uh, so, in the case of the resurrection, I think you can make you can make a case from the uh, what I call the the instances of messianic convergence in the Gospels, which is where you have multiple examples, many examples where uh, you have coincidences in the Gospel accounts which correspond in some way that seems to be undesigned um, with uh, with the Old Testament. Uh, so, for example, Jesus' uh, death coincided with the Jewish feast of Passover. Uh, which is something which is very well established historically, good evidence for that. And yet, given the theological import of Jesus' death, Jesus being represented in the New Testament as the Passover lamb, et cetera, which fulfills um, Exodus 12 and, and the, the Passover lamb that's blood was to be um, smeared on the doorposts of every home to, to protect the firstborn from the wrath of God. Uh, that uh, theological symbolism then is, is quite, given that theological symbolism, then it's, it's quite striking that Jesus' death just so happens to correspond to that day. Another example would be the fact that Christianity becomes the dominant global religion that it becomes, uh, given what the Old Testament says, such as in Isaiah 49, for example, uh, which says uh, that the Messiah was to become a light for the nations or the Gentiles, that God's salvation might reach the ends of the earth. Uh, given, uh, until 313 AD, which, where you have the Edict of Milan, uh, Christianity was a persecuted minority in no position to enforce, uh, or no, no position, the, the probability of uh, Christianity becoming such a dominant global religion seemed to be vanishingly small for the first few centuries of the church, and yet it did. Must, now, pretty soon we must move on to the next question. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll, I'm just finishing. Um, and so, given that the Old Testament predicts um, that Christianity would become, uh, that Christ would bring the light of God's salvation to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, uh, the probability of that happening is much more probable given the Christianity than given its falsehood. And so, given this theological backdrop, I think that we have a higher probability than atheists would like us to believe for the resurrection. Gotcha. And Ian Utubian, thank you for your super chat, said, Matt, have you ever heard of A.J. Miller in Australia who seriously thinks, quote-unquote, that he is Jesus? Not as far as I know. I, I It's possible I've heard it, but I, I don't recall. Uh, the, the, the last question that was asked was about whether or not it's more likely that someone was lying. And I just wanted to add in my note that I'm not in any way claiming that somebody's lying. However, lying would be more likely than accurately reporting a miracle. Um, anyway, so yeah, I don't, I don't know that. I, I don't know if you're going to get to this other question, but I noticed a question in chat that I wanted to address really quickly. Somebody asked why I have a different standard for the Bible than I would for any other historical book. And the answer is, I don't. Any other historical book that was making claims about supernatural events, I would reject those as well. Gotcha. And... Thanks for your question. This one is from Natural Legion. Appreciate it. Said, Jonathan, you invoked... Oh, that's right. Oh, since the last question was for you, Jonathan, I, what we usually do is we give the last word to the original person it was addressing. If you'd like to give a response to Matt, you can. Otherwise, we'll go to the next one. No, we can move on. Gotcha. Natural Legion, thanks for your question. Said, Jonathan, you invoked Luke's reliability as a historian. By that standard, shouldn't we believe miracles of Greek mythology documented by Herodotus? Uh, no, we'd have to look at the, the evidence. Uh, so it, and just the fact that, that a miracle is claimed in another source doesn't 
necessarily um, provide good evidence, evidential support for that miracle claim. You have to look at the particulars. And I think that the, in the case of the resurrection, the particulars are well substantiated for the reasons I gave, among others. Gotcha. Jake 4D, thanks to your question from Matt. They said this is a serious question. They're not trying to troll. They said, uh, okay. Matt, they said, why do you equate anti-theism to global atheism instead of the more common uses like anti-harm or anti-all religion? Uh, yeah, that was all. I'm not completely sure I understand the question uh, because I don't know what he means by global atheism. But um, when I use, so Hitchens used to use the term anti-theism as an opposition to religion. And I think that that doesn't fit with the etymology of, of the word and, and splicing it together. So I'm in opposition to theism. Like I actively reject theism. Uh, whether or not it counts me as an anti-theist under somebody else's definition, I'm not really bothered by it. I really don't care what labels somebody choose. Like, I don't, I don't have a big problem with Jonathan. He can say, he could say, I'm not a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ because he's making some distinction about Christian as a label. I, I'm not saying that you would say that, Jonathan. I, this the example that comes in head, my head because it comes up a lot. So I don't care what somebody calls themselves. And so somebody's like, oh, I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I'm like, okay, well, I, I think you're you're screwing up a little bit there in, in self-labeling, but you get to do that. Um, I might do a video at some point kind of like on my take on anti-theism, but it's not the sort of thing I care enough about so that if somebody's like, oh, you're wrong about how you're using anti-theism. Okay, I don't care. Gotcha. And thank you for your question. This one comes in from Brandon Hol Holbrook says, is there any verifiable extra biblical evidence supporting the resurrection, Jonathan? Uh, no, I don't think so. Gotcha. That was an easy question. <laughs> Roy Stegall. Let's see. This one might be easy, too. I think you covered this already, Jonathan, but we'll give uh, just in case. Roy asks, if it could be shown to your satisfaction that the resurre resurrection didn't happen, would you still be a Christian, Jonathan? Absolutely not. As I said in, at the beginning of my opening statement, I am a very staunch evidentialist. So I believe in the gospel because and only because I am persuaded by the public evidence that Christianity is true. And in principle, I would be prepared to change my mind on that conclusion if the um, evidence were to swim to to, to um, flow the other direction. What evidence could ever possibly be presented that the resurrection didn't happen? That's a great question. Um, I, I I have been asked this quite a bit. Uh, I. Uh, and the examples that are normally given and have been presented to you in, in some of your other debates would be that if you were to find the body of Jesus or, or something like that. And I, I, I get why atheists find that answer quite frustrating because that, that uh, in principle, yes, that would falsify Christianity. But how would you ever demonstrate that it was yeah. the body of Jesus, right? Well, we found um, a body. Yeah. So, so I, I completely agree with you. However, um, if, if the arguments that I think support the resurrection turned out in the fullness of time not to be as, as strong as I thought they were, then that would reduce my confidence correspondingly in the resurrection. And I think, uh, in principle, you could make an argument Jesus didn't exist. I mean, Richard Carrier and Bob Price and David Fitzgerald and others have tried to mount that argument. I don't think it works. But in principle, I think you could make such an argument. Um, yeah, I don't and... think it works either. Cool. Um, you, you and I are in agreement there. I think, I think the one thing is, what if, what if it could be shown that to the, the extent to which you're convinced that the Bible's account of the resurrection is accurate would force you into accepting other religious claims as well if you were to use the same standard of evidence. Sorry, can you, can you repeat that? Sure. Whatever standard of evidence you, you, you've 
whatever epistemological foundation you've got that leads you to the conclusion that the reports in the Bible are reliably strong evidence for a resurrection. If it could be shown that if you applied that standard to other religious claims as well, you would be forced to accept them, would that right. change your mind? Yes, it would. That, that would significantly undermine my confidence, yeah. And and typically, I mean, I, I tend to think of worldviews very sim in very similar terms to scientific paradigm or scientific theory, that all scientific theories have anomalous data, but you don't just throw out the whole paradigm because you have some anomalous data. But over time, that anomalous data acu accumulates. And if you, if you have enough anomalous data that doesn't fit your paradigm, eventually you're going to think, okay, th th this, this paradigm might actually be false. Um, okay. And likewise with Christianity, I do, I, although there were some extreme examples I could think of, in practice, I think that it wouldn't be a single piece of extraordinary evidence that would change my mind, but it would be um, a, the cumulative effect of many pieces of independent evidence pointing against Christianity, which in the long run, I think would, would be sufficient to change my mind. Uh, but, but, but now you're back to cumulative evidence. All I was talking about was if it was shown that your foundation, your reasoning would force you to accept others as well, and you said, yes, you'd accept it. Now that is fundamentally the exact question that I asked repeatedly before you left that you never answered. How can you write off these other claims from religion when they are just accounts as well they don't have there's not it's not like christianity has some extra physical evidence for it it's just here's here's a bunch of accounts and here's a bunch of accounts and you're dismissing others what is the standard that makes you accept one and reject another uh the particulars of the of the case and the evidence that's presented so in the case of um the the quran for example and i've debated many muslim scholars the uh the, in terms of the, the subject in terms of the historiography of Jesus, which is what we're discussing today, the Quran claims in Surah 4 verse 157, Jesus was not crucified. Um, and it says he was not put on the cross uh, by the Jews. Um, at least that's the classical interpretation. Uh, although there, uh, there are other schools of thought that wouldn't agree with that, but that's at least the mainstream interpretation of that verse in, in Islam. And we have good evidence from uh, the first century that Jesus really was crucified, even if you reject the, the, the resurrection. And so, uh, and the Quran was written 600 years later, gotta, right? Is that evidence in the Bible or out of the moving. Bible? I'm afraid we've got to keep moving okay. just because there are a lot of questions left. We do have another one from Royce de Gaulle, maybe relevant in a super broad way. It says, uh, is probability relevant at all after the fact of these alleged historical events? No. Is that for me as well? I would guess. I'm not sure. Um, prob is probability relevant after the fact? Um, I'm not quite sure what he's getting at. Um, I mean, the, the way that Bayes, the way that the Bayesian inference works is you have this likelihood ratio, the probability of the evidence existing given your hypothesis, and the probability of that same evidence existing given the falsity of that hypothesis. So long as you have a top-heavy ratio, that is, that the the product of that ratio is greater than one you have evidence for your proposition. And the extent to which it's greater than one, the more evidence you have. So a Bayes factor of 100, for example, means you have evidence that's 100 times more likely given your hypothesis and given its falsehood. And I think that's, I think it's perfectly legitimate to apply that to historiographical investigation. Gotcha. And Michael Dresden, thanks for your super chats. Uh, we're gonna just roll this into one because they're basically, from what I gather, it's kind of the same idea. They said, Matt, you had said that claims are not evidence. And then they said, some women claim that men have raped them. Do their claims count, or do their claims alone count as evidence, as well as uh, uh, black people in the U.S. who have claimed that they've experienced racism? Does that, they say, do the claims alone count as evidence? 
So there's a, I, I did a, an entire video about this distinction between claims and evidence. Um, it's not that a claim cannot also be evidence for a proposition. I'm getting ready to do another video about this notion of extraordinary claims. But the, the question here isn't whether or not it should count as a data point. It's whether or not it should be sufficient to convince. And so the answer to that is essentially no. The mere fact that someone says something happened is not necessarily on its own conclusive enough to show that it did happen. What often, what often happens is that these conversations end up derailing into something. He wants to object to a person offering up their perception of their identity and, and saying, oh, should we accept that? Yes, because if the subject's about the identity. But if it's, what I'm saying is if your claim is, in, in logic, we have propositions. And we don't simultaneously, we don't like address a question which would have two possible answers or more. Instead, we have a proposition. Some God exists. This event happened. This is true. And that in and of itself is not evidence for the proposition that is being there. It is the proposition. The proposition itself is not evidence. And what Jonathan did, which I'm fine with, is that, ah, the confidence that we have in the person who's presenting this, that factors in. And you're absolutely right. And the other thing that factors in is how consistent that claim is with the facts that we have of the world. If somebody says they were abducted and only probed by an alien, that is a claim that requires something more than the claim. There are claims that we can just accept at face value because they are bolstered up by the mountains of evidence about the way the world works. If somebody comes up to me and says, hey, I just got a new puppy. Well, I know puppies are real and people have puppies. And so... The problem is that we're bad at recognizing how much evidence we are attributing to the claim the instant we hear it. We, when you hear a claim, you immediately say, is this claim consistent with the facts that I know about the world? And the more consistent the claim is with the facts, the less additional information you would need to provide. If you tell me, you know, I just got a new puppy last night, I'm just going to take your word for it because the worst thing that can happen is I find out that you're a liar or dishonest or wrong. And that's not going to fundamentally rewrite the world. Gotcha. If instead, if instead you tell me there's uh, a being who came down and died and was resurrected as some sort of substitutionary atonement for my wrongs against another facet of that same individual, you're going to have to come with more than a claim. And that doesn't mean that you come with multiple claims because the plural of anecdote isn't data. And lining up a bunch of different people anonymously to say this is true doesn't mean all of a sudden we have a bunch more evidence. What we have are multiplying claims, not actual evidence the evidence would be hey show me the empty tomb i hear all, all my life i keep hearing empty tomb empty tomb oh what's the proof of the resurrection the empty tomb there is no freaking empty tomb there's a claim of an empty tomb nobody's ever demonstrated here is the tomb where they put jesus and now he's not here that has never happened and it can never happen unless there's a god that comes down and finds a way to do it but we christians use the shorthand oh the empty tomb the empty tomb there is no empty tomb stop saying there's an empty tomb until you prove it Produce the damn corpse. That's what. That's the issue with evidence. So I, I don't quite. I don't quite understand the, um, Matt's answer to that last question. So, um, if a woman claims that she was raped, that's surely evidence she was. I, I agree that it's not proof that she was raped, but it's surely evidence, right? It's, it, no, it's the the claim is not the evidence. Now, there's a bunch of things that we take into account with all of that, which includes the 
you know, what we know about that individual, any other physical data and everything else, but merely someone coming in and saying that they were sexually assaulted does not mean that you have reason to conclude that they are, because that in and of itself is not evidence. Now, what we know about their character, their demeanor as they report this, all of those things become factors in weighing the reliability and trustworthiness of that person. Gotcha. Thanks so much. Next up, appreciate your question from Jeff Soul. Said, hi, Matt, huge fan. Can both of you steel man the other person's position? I can try. Uh, do you want to go first or should I go first? I don't mind. Sure. Uh, Jonathan is convinced that the reports in the Bible are from reliable people who are telling the truth and that the weight of this across a number of different short passages adds up to we should accept that the most reasonable uh, explanation for these reports is that the events actually happened. Okay, so my uh, steel manning of Matt's position is that a miracle is the always the least probable explanation of an event. And we always want to infer the most probable explanation of an event. And so we can never, in principle, infer a miracle as the best explanation of an historical event. Furthermore, the Gospels and the accounts that we have in the New Testament are uh, hearsay. They're composed by anonymous authors and uh, that uh, claims are, are not evidence. And all we have in the New Testament is a bunch of claims. I think that's a fair still manning of Matt's position. Except the first part's completely wrong. Okay, sorry. Clarify for me. So you started off by by saying that my position involves um, a miracle is always the least likely explanation. I didn't say that today. You did. A matter of fact, I didn't talk about an explanation for the resurrection at all. I my position when you're having a debate, this is the same thing that Mike Lacona did. When you're having a debate about is there good evidence for the resurrection, that is, did the event happen? Not what is your explanation for it. I didn't talk about, you know. Uh, miracles or how unlikely there were the super all I talked about is is there evidence for the resurrection if there was sufficient evidence for the resurrection I would believe the resurrection occurred and I still would not know how it happened we would need evidence for the how separately so to begin straw manning sorry steel manning my position by talking about how I'm just rejecting miracles out of hand is actually not a steel man in my position gotcha uh we have to, let's see, okay. we have to keep moving. I hate to do that, but let's see, uh, Jeff, let's see, we've got that one. Thanks for your question, Jake 4D, who says, non-deliberate coincidences, not only unprovable, it's unlikely as the gospels copied off of each other. I think that would be a challenge to you, Jonathan, on given that they're saying the gospels copied off of each other in the wording at least the way they worded it what was the what was the first part of the question given something if i if i could for just a second since this is one for jonathan yeah. um and it's one that i may not have much of a, a dog in this fight can i just mute and go to the restroom real quick while jonathan sure. answers this? thank you uh james can you read that again for me the first part of the question yeah. let's see so they said Non-deliberate coincidence is not only unprovable, it's unlikely as the Gospels copied off of each other. I think they're saying the, it's against your designed coincidences argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, obviously there's a literary dependency between the Gospels, especially the synoptics. The extent to which John 
is dependent on the synoptics as, as an item of debate among uh, New Testament scholars. Uh, I personally lean towards the view that John was, in fact, uh, dependent to some extent on the synoptics. Uh, but I, I don't think it undermines the argument for the following reason, that we have uh, the, the, the interlockings between the gospel accounts are casual and subtle. Uh, so to take another example, um, in John 6, verse 5, we have uh, the setup for the feeding of the 5,000 miracle, and Jesus uh, asks, where should we, uh, or Jesus turns to Philip, and he says, where do we send people to buy bread? Which raises a natural question in the mind of the audience, why does he turn to Philip here. Um, well, if you flip over to John 12, we learn just in passing, it's incidentally mentioned that Philip is from the town of Bethsaida. In Luke chapter 9, um, although Luke doesn't mention Philip in that context at all, it does mention that uh, the event of the feeding of the 5,000 took place in Bethsaida. Um, and so by putting the pieces together, even though that's never spelled out as to why Jesus turned to Philip in John 6, 5, when you put the pieces together, now we understand, we have an explanation for why Jesus turns to Philip in John 6, 5, because he's a local guy who knows where the shop started to buy bread. And uh, that th these seem to fit together in a non-deliberate way. It's not that um, John is, is reading Luke and he sees that the events in Bethsaida, and so he, he picks Philip, but doesn't even mention that the event took place in Bethsaida, and then he hides in a, an unrelated part of John's gospel uh, six chapters later uh, that Philip is from the town of Bethsaida. Uh, and so it's the, the casualness and subtlety of these interlockings uh, that, that provides support for historicity. Gotcha. Thanks for your question. This one comes in from, let's see, got that. Smoky Saint, thanks for yours. Mm, it's not really a question. Next up, Stupid Whore Energy, thanks for your question, said, we do see the pattern of Luke and Matthew editing Mark's material, such as Mark 2.14. I think that's a challenge to you, Jonathan. Mark 2.14. Uh, sorry, I need to look this up for a sec. It's funny because you and I are both looking that up. Okay. So Mark 2.14, uh, he passed, as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to me, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And sorry, what was the point he was making, that Matthew and Luke copied that? You're right. I, or I think that they were maybe even adapting it or changing it. Uh there's no con contest that the synop that the there's a luxury dependence between the synoptics so i don't know why he's uh bringing that up and i'm not sure the relevance of the debate either gotcha that makes two of us hey uh, jonathan and i are in violent dis uh, are agreement there brian <laughs> brian stevens thanks for your question said when someone says naturalism is a problem wouldn't non-magicism be a problem too Magic explains everything we have questions about just as well as the supernatural. No, it doesn't. Magic explains nothing. We explain things and we explain the un unknown, un the things that we don't understand. We explain those by appealing to things we do understand. You can't solve a, a mystery by appealing to a bigger mystery. And it's not, let's not pretend that there's any explanatory power in how did I do this? And someone says, it's magic, because there's zero explanatory power there. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one's from God's Servant. It says, Jonathan McClatchy, I've been looking for a debate with you since I debated your friend, Aaron Raw. And he suggested that we do so. When are we going to debate Acts 238, my friend? I know that um, <laughs> I, I don't accept debate, debate invitations on air, but if he wants to contact me uh, via my website and send me his resume, I'll be happy to consider doing a debate. 
Gotcha. I'm not only back. I'm not only back, Jonathan, on this. If anybody showed up and actually, like, even if they super chatted money to like challenge me to debate, my answer is going to be no. That's this isn't a WWE thing. It's not like, oh, I'm calling you out. You you betrayed me. Step into a slim gym. I don't give a crap about stuff like that. I, I just want to have a, a conversation. <laughs> Step into a slim gym. I like that. Good memories of Randy Savage. I think it was Randy Savage. Okay, next up. Thanks yeah. for your question. Uh, Waka Santana said, let's see. Yeah, it was more of an insult. All right. Let Bothell Guy, thanks for your question, said, Jonathan, Greek religion says that Dionysus rose from the dead. We have records of that in religious text Jonathan did he raise because we have reports in their book and Matt let's see can you point out the fallacies in the question for Jonathan I think they meant maybe like the fallacies in like the charge of inconsistency that came up earlier in the debate Jonathan will give you a chance to yeah. respond to whether or not Dionysus rose from the dead yeah so as I said it's not just the fact that the resurrection is claimed in the new testament is that we have uh, it's it's that uh it's the particular nature of the claims uh, so just the fact that it's claimed in some ancient source that so and so rose from the dead that doesn't really tell you anything you have to look at okay are these sources which are credible historically that they're substantially trustworthy are they close up to the facts are they habitually truthful and and reliable sources of information um, and do they go back to people who were eyewitnesses? Uh, and uh, in the case of the resurrection, I think that we do have those. Um, but uh, in, in the case of Dionysus and, and uh, figures in, in other uh, religions, I, I don't think that we do. Gotcha. And Jake, for I think uh, I was just going to say that the the only distinction that I can find is that one of the two stories became more popular and was spread more than another. That, that's the primary distinction, is that if more people had accepted the Dionysus thing, and well, also there's the, the notion of when, when more and more people began to write things down as opposed to just telling stories, there's a number of reasons why that's the case. But at the end, I will, I will, I will agree, there's better, um, there's a better case for the resurrection of Jesus than there's for Dionysus, just in the sense that there's more potential reports about it. But the question is, it's like saying, that's like saying, I'm the smartest village idiot. It doesn't matter that you have more than a worse claim. The question is, do you have enough for this claim to be justified? Do you have strong evidence, which I clearly think today we, we have not seen strong evidence, but is it, even if you had strong evidence for the resurrection, that's still a separate issue from, do you have sufficient evidence to warrant accepting a resurrection? Gotcha, thank you. And Jake, let's see. Oh, and to answer that other guy's question, no, I'm not going to sit here and go through every question that's being asked of Jonathan and point out fallacies, if that's what they were asking, because we're almost off the clock here. Next up, let's see. Yeah, I've got a, we're going to try to fly through as many as possible. Shimitiz Werban, thanks for your question, Super Chat said just want to support the channel and thank matt much love from europe also jake 4d thanks for your claim they said claims are evidence they just happen to be better evidence for someone making a claim than the event itself still evidence just weak evidence i think they're challenging your position on uh claims and evidence matt okay i have a million dollars is that evidence 
They're not going to answer. It doesn't matter. Gotcha. And let's see. John Robertson, thanks for your question, said, what historical evidence for the resurrection would you consider necessary and sufficient to compel belief? I think that, I don't know who it's for. If you guys have a guess. Uh, I, I suspect it's for Matt. Uh, I do too. Yeah. yeah. And, and my answer is, I don't know. I don't have any other resurrection claims to compare it to. It's like saying, hey, here's something that you have no evidence for that's never occurred in reality in an identifiable way. What sort of evidence would convince you of it? I don't know. What sort of evidence would convince someone of a black hole? At the point where, where, where black holes were just speculative, I'm not even sure that the people who were talking about it could have identified, ah, here's the evidence we need. But when the evidence appears and is presented and there's, there's a demonstrable causal connection tie between the evidence and the claim, that's when it becomes compelling. To, to pretend that I need to have an understanding of everything that would convince me about everything or I don't have a sound epistemology is, is asinine. Uh, what I need is to be open to becoming convinced. And my question throughout this entire thing has been that if I were to accept the New Testament account, what other accounts would I have to accept? How far will I have lowered my standards of evidence so that I would have to also accept competing claims? And I think it's just a laundry list of crap. Gotcha. And Stitches, thanks for your question, said, Matt, what do you think of the Satanic Temple? I think they're a really good ally in supporting church-state separation cases because it demonstrates the hypocrisy of a primacy of Christianity as a de facto religion within you know, the United States, the Western world, and other things like that. Um, I have problems with the name. I, I, it's... I mean, don't get me wrong, I agree with them on a bunch of things, and um, they're vastly better than the religions that would disparage them. Gotcha. And John Robertson, thanks for your question, said, Joseph Smith versus Paul, how do you distinguish between who is lying, honestly mistaken, or telling the truth? I think that's for you, Jonathan. How do you distinguish between someone who is lying, mistaken, honestly, or telling the truth? Uh, uh, through the methods that I outlined in my opening statement, I gave arguments. Uh, so that's what my whole opening statement was about: was providing. And uh, it's it's not that it's that each of the individual lines of evidence are proof positive. Um, in in my rejection of, of each of these alternative hypotheses, but rather the provide evidence. And as we add more and more evidence, uh, it provides uh, more and more support that confirms uh, the falsity of the alternative hypotheses, namely the, the myth hypothesis, the conspiracy hypothesis, the hallucination hypothesis. And therefore, since that redistributes the probabilities, that supports, in turn, the resurrection hypothesis. Gotcha. Thanks so much. want to let you know, folks, I just realized, did we... Has it already been two hours and 20 minutes? Is yes. it just... Whoa! Um, okay, I'm really sorry, guys. This is longer. We, than... we started a couple minutes late, and we did a few minutes without Jonathan. But yeah, it's been that long. Whoa. Okay, so sorry, guys. I I definitely gave you the impression it wouldn't be this long. So, folks, want to let you know we can't take any more questions. We're gonna try to finish up really fast. Less than ten minutes. We're gonna try to get through the rest. And so, please do me a favor. Don't send any more questions. We won't be able to get get to them. I just realized. I was thinking it's been like an hour and 20 minutes, and it's actually been two hours and 20 minutes. But thanks for your question. Let's see. We've got 
God's servant again says, Matt, this is Patrick from Ohio. Acts 2.38 is truth, in all caps. Would love to debate you again, my friend. So, <laughs> yes, you, James W., also a fan, says, uh, Matt Delhunty is a human iron chariot. Bruce Wayne says, epic debate. Excellent job, Matt. Lots of fans here. And then we've got Michael Simonelli, thanks for your question, said, why doesn't Jonathan accept other holy, well, we covered that, other holy books. Wes Carty Let's see. Thanks for your question, comment. Then we have... Is, is Acts 238 David Wood? No, I, I think it's... Acts uh, 17 Apologetics. It's, it's, it's who? That's Acts 17 Apologetics, is David uh, Wood. Thanks. Then, then who's this Acts 238 that I'm going to turn down a debate with? Oh, I think... To, in order I, to stay consistent. I think it was like an actual passage they were trying to... I don't know. I'm oh, not sure. That's, that's fine. I thought it was somebody who went that way. Yeah, I'm sorry. I got confused. Gotcha. God's servant again. <laughs> let's see. Oh wait, we we've got we got that one. Let's see. Uh, Ethan. This is an interesting one. Ethan Montier, thanks for your question. Said thanks, Matt, for the years and years of reasoning we spoke about a year ago. And when was the last time you heard a truly unique argument after so long? And do you have a pre/slash post debate routine? Uh, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever heard anything that's truly new or unique. I mean, most of it seems to be derivative, and that's not a problem, because it, so even someone like Sai, Sai's uh, a big benefit I guess, or uh, credit is that he's consistent. He's consistently wrong, as far as I'm concerned, but he's he's consistent. And so while I haven't heard anything new in a debate, I, it, there's always a new different spin on old things. And I like having the conversations. There was a second part to this question, but I don't remember what it was now. Gotcha. What, what, was, what was the last line of the Oh, do you have a pre and post debate oh. routine? Uh, no, today I took a shower, shaved, put on a shirt, played guitar for a little bit, and then came in here. <laughs> you got it. And thanks for your question. This one coming in from... S.J. Thomason, old old buddy of yours, Matt, says, Jesus makes himself obvious to billions today. Ask, seek, and you'll find him. He is love. I love that S.J. either asks a completely irrelevant question or just pays to preach instead of asking a question during the question and answer part. But, you know, good. It's, it's the only reason that I... Well, anyway, go ahead, continue. Next, Sentinel Apologetics, thanks for your... Uh, question said matt there are tons of second temple studies showcasing the thorough backdrop of the new testament and greco-roman context that showcases its true historiography cool nice claim sorry you couldn't answer ask a question next up dominic Dinesthuber, thanks for your question, said, if you write a dogmatic book about your religion, would you write about your witnesses to be trustworthy or would you claim that they are a fraud not sure who that's for. Uh, either. I guess we could both answer it. Um, <laughs> so you we'll, won. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a strange question because I'm not arguing that I'm not arguing that the gospel authors are reliable because they claim to be reliable. Of, of course, that would be an absurd argument. I'm claiming that they are, there's good evidence that they're reliable because on the points that we can cross-check, they actually um, are, prove themselves to be close up to the facts and get a lot of. Uh, information correct which then provides from a facet reason for trusting them even in those 
instances that we cannot directly cross-check. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and and within, you know, like in Magic, there's this notion of a, of a too-perfect theory. Like, James, if I were to ask you to name any card in a deck of cards, what would you name? Uh, the Jack. Uh, the Jack of Spades. The Jack of Spades. Now, if, in fact, I were sitting here holding a card off to the side uh, and moved it over in there, and it happened to be the Jack of Spades... That would that trick would fall flat because of the two perfect symbol. Ooh, nice! You can see the green screen. It's too perfect that you named a card and it happened to be the card I was holding, and so it leads directly to what the solution is. When it comes to what we like and what we admire, we like symmetry, but we don't like perfect symmetry. A perfectly symmetrical face is somehow a disturbing or off-putting to us. It seems completely unsurprising to me that people, when telling a story, that they're willing to exaggerate or engage in a little hyperbole, et cetera. Uh, they know, we know from a child, from the time that you're, you're starting to interact with other children, you know, you learn how to tell stories in such a way that people find them more compelling and the stories need flaws. Otherwise it's just too perfect. And so it's hardly unsurprising to me that there would be flaws in the story when we're talking about flawed human beings. Gotcha. And question from Ian Utublin said, Dr. Jonathan, could the Gospels have a Mandela effect? No, because there's no such thing. What, 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 is, what does he mean by the Mandela effect? That's not actually a term I'm familiar with. I, even after reading about it twice, I still am not sure if I understand it. Basically, the Mandela effect, which isn't a real thing, is, is a, something that they've labeled where people will remember bits of history differently. Uh, like, you know, oh, here's a picture of... Tiananmen Square with somebody standing in front of a tank and they'll remember different details of it differently or is it the Berenstein Bears or the Berenstein Bears or whatever else and the truth is is that there's not a real thing there it's this is not well all we're really saying is that people are, have flawed memories gotcha and thanks for your question from Sentinel Apologetics says theology is as important as the scientific method Paul says that the cross is necessary since God isn't a hypocrite in regards to sin Romans 3 I guess is that for Matt I didn't need, was it a question yeah uh, more of a statement let's see I uh, but next up let's see Michael Simonelli thanks for your question says how does Jonathan know he's that the claims he's using to assert the biblical figures are trustworthy are true. Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand that question. I thought I'd already outlined that. Um, I think that there's, um, there, there are numerous categories of evidence which cumulatively bear on the substantial trustworthiness of the gospel accounts, including undesigned coincidences, extra biblical corroborations, unexplained allusions, artless similarities and so forth, uh, expressive silence and, uh, Although we don't have time to get into all those, I think the argument is that cumulatively those provide substantial support for the general reliability of the gospel accounts. And therefore, when the gospels assert something to be true, that provides a basis for trusting that to be true, even if we, we don't have direct evidence for that particular fact, and th unless there's evidence to the contrary, of course. Yeah, I think, I think the objection here, if, I, if I'm, if I'm going to try to interpret what they're asking, is that on several occasions, including just now, I've heard Jonathan say extra biblical, extra biblical evidence, extra biblical support. And yet there's nothing about his case that was extra biblical at all. Gotcha. And thanks for your question. This one comes in from, let's see, I'm going to paraphrase this, Michael, because it's just, 
a lot of it's kind of redundant from a last question, but it's like a follow-up. They said, uh, for Matt, they said, if, if claims being evidence is context-dependent, then isn't it true that claims can be evidence? No, it's not the claim that's the evidence. It's the, the context that becomes the evidence. Gotcha. I don't know why this is a different. A proper, here, let me, let me do it differently. A proposition is never evidence. Maybe that's, I mean, that's the distinction we need to make, that when, when Jonathan hears someone making a claim, what he hears is someone of this character in this setting with these factors made this proposition. And then he's adding those things in as evidence for the proposition, the character of the person. Maybe that's it. But I could be wrong, because if I say propositions aren't evidence, for all I know, Jonathan's going to say, yes, they are. I don't know. Gotcha. And S.J. Thomason said, Peter denied Jesus three times. Paul jailed Christians. James, Prove it. brother Prove of it. Jesus, tried Prove to it. stop his ministry. Then they saw the risen Christ preached for him for decades and were martyred. Best explanation from Matt and Jonathan. Prove it. Prove any of what you just said. You can't. Gotcha. I think we have an idea that <laughs> I think we know where Jonathan stands. Definitely. Let's see. Uh, we only have just maybe two more. Thanks, Red Knight A21, who said, Why would the disciples preach a lie for no reason and have the Romans hate them? Why would the early Christians start a religion that would get them killed? Why would anybody start a religion that might get them killed? Do you think Christianity is the only religion that was persecuted or treated harshly by the people in the surroundings? That's, that's such a flawed line of reasoning. There's nothing else to say. Gotcha. And want to say uh god servant thanks for that final super chat feel free uh what what you can do they ask if they ever want to come on a debate if you email me at modern day debate um we're getting a little bit more a little bit more like uh selective in terms of who we have on just in terms of like asking for prior debate experience things like that but i'm at modern day debate at gmail and always happy to hear from you folks feedback on the channel that's really useful it does help us we really want you folks as the audience to have your hand on the steering wheel of the channel and want to say thanks to our guest today it has been a truly fun one matt and jonathan thanks so much for hanging out with us thanks so much yeah. for your endurance as well two and a half hours i can't remember how long like it's been a long time since we've gone this long but this is great well there were there were tech interruptions and other stuff so it's all good anyway also want to let you know folks both matt and jonathan are linked in the description so if you want to hear more you can hear more from both of them and last but not least thanks so much just for hanging out with us folks thanks mods for always keeping an eye out just all the help you do and we will hopefully see you next time folks as we have on monday david smalley and randall rouser facing off on whether or not christian belief is rational so thanks so much folks and have a great weekend
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.